everyone. Welcome to Beer Cake with JJ Co. I'm your host, JJ Co. You can find Beer Cake with JJ Co. Wow, that's a lot of JJ Co's. Anyway. Yeah, why don't you just say welcome to Beer Cake I know. JJ Co. Duh. But I mean, that's the official name. But anyway, hey, you guys can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you could stream uh, the podcast on anchor.fm and Spotify. Um, it will soon become available on other platforms like Apple and Google. Uh, but for now, you can find me on Spotify. You could also follow me on, on the social media. And if you want to support this podcast, anchor.fm, uh, patreon.com, and buymeacoffee.com. Yeah, I couldn't decide which ones to go with, so I'm, I'm on everything. <laughs> so today, my guest is Mark Albert. Um, he is actually one of my oldest friends, believe it or not, because uh, I, I don't think I kept in touch with anyone before high school. So yeah, Mark and I went to high school together. He is now an accomplished journalist. Um, I've known you for a long time, but there were periods in, in, in our lives where we were sort of out of touch. So there were there are whole chunks of your life that I have no idea about and only sort of glimpse at when we get together in a group um so mark and i we uh and there's like five or six of us um sort of loose circle of friends that we kind of get together every once in a while um and talk we've been doing that actually a little more frequently since the pandemic uh, because everyone's on on um virtual meetings but anyway enough about that so mark why don't you say hello and it's an honor and a pleasure to join you on beer cake and jj it is just absolutely wonderful to see you uh it life has been very chaotic for me in the recent months and uh thank you so much for that wonderful introduction i actually am an officially still actually uh, until yesterday i could say i was an unemployed writer uh, but um, after being laid off in September via email, uh, I have, I guess I've been notified that I've started my new job at um, the NPR station right here or over in Roner Park, California, Sonoma County. And uh, I moved this past weekend. Uh, my stuff is piled up like the Collier Brothers uh, apart, uh, townhouse, although uh, I realized after I moved in, I don't. I don't know if I have a sponge. Uh, I don't have a kitchen table. I'm actually sitting at a kotatsu I found in the trash in Japan in 1996. That's a whole nother story, how it, I've had it now for 25 years and you know, follow me from home, home to home. Uh, but it's wonderful to see you. And I'm at the uh, edge of a whole new um, phase of my life. Uh, and, um, you know, yeah, it's getting down to it. Wow. That's, uh, uh, so I missed something, something from Japan that, that followed you from move oh, to yeah, move. What yeah. is that? It's, a uh, basically it's a heated, it's an electric coffee table, essentially. So, uh, it's a very low table, low to the ground, uh, and it has an electric heating element underneath it and a fan sort of like a toaster. And you'd put um, blankets over the top, and then there's a tabletop that go that goes over the top of the blankets. So you pull the blankets over you, you turn the thing on, and it heats 
electrically, but it heats like four square feet of your home directly underneath. So your, your legs and your, your body up to your chest is, is, is super warm, but the rest of your house can be 40 degrees and it doesn't really matter. So it's an incredibly uh, brilliant energy efficient uh, heating source. And it's also, and it's some sort of like modern recreation of some kind of ancient thing with putting you know, rocks in the fire and then wrapping the rocks up in a blanket and putting the, the blanket with the hot rock underneath your table or having your feet on it or something like that. So it's, it's sort of like a modern recreation of an ancient thing, not from my culture, but I, I lived in Japan for a number of years, um, many, you know, 25 years ago. And uh, they have an incredible system of once a week they have, a, or once a month they have uh, what they call big garbage, ogata gomi. And you just walk the streets and I don't know, I mean, I found service for eight, China, um, antique, you know, furniture, um, you know, furnished my entire house with uh, stuff found in the street and found like two or three kotatsus, which are those tables and uh, kerosene space heaters. They have these neat um, space heaters with a button, but when the, when it no longer, when the button no longer works, you have to like light it with a lighter and I guess people just throw them out. So, you know, yeah. grab them off the street. And let me tell you, there was something else riding a bicycle around Kyoto with, um, I had two 18 liter um, bottles for kerosene. You'd go to the gas station, they'd fill them up and I had one in the basket and one like strapped to the back of the granny bicycle and you know trying to ride up a hill with 36 liters of kerosene. Oh my God, <laughs> that's insane. It sounds like you do a lot of insane things. <laughs> well, you know, I'm still, still trying to get by, you know, I left the Bronx some 30 plus years ago. Um, I think I it's- I haven't fully adjusted. Oh yeah, I guess it's only about 30 something years ago. For some reason, like I keep thinking that it's it's been like 40 years since we graduated high school, but we're not that old yet. It's getting there. <laughs> yeah. It's getting there. Yeah. Wow. So um so yeah, uh so you're a journalist. Have you is have you been a journalist uh, all your life? Actually, by the way, earlier when you were saying like you were temporarily an out of work writer, I was going to joke like, um, aren't all writers out of work essentially? Well, I know that's the thing. And I've been trying unsuccessfully to use that as a uh, come online or a pickup line on a dating app, you know, like, hey, your, your opportunity to say you dated an unemployed writer, you know, is coming with close. But, um, <laughs> wait is is that a is that a draw for people or people are, are women attracted to unemployed writers is that it uh you know i think it's a it's, it's a small niche yeah <laughs> you know maybe uh if they're divorced and getting you know have a great job or 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 getting financial support or yeah. whatever you know i mean if somebody's financially secure you know who knows but you know, put um, it up there. I don't want to deceive anybody and say like, oh, well, let me check my stocks and I'll have to, you know, have my yacht fixed, you know. Oh, I can't reach you. I'm off to my vacation, my third vacation home. Yeah, no, that's not happening. <laughs> um, but 
I, I'm glad you're employed now. Now, um, so were you um, were you always a journalist, like in your professional life? You know, I think I I certainly aspired to do that, and um, my very first experience was, you know, back in high school. Uh, I wandered into uh, WBAI to answer phones during the pledge drive. I remember that. I remember okay. that. Yeah. I mean, and I met so many wacky people, you know, uh, you know, people who are committed, people who are earnest, people who are, you know, trying to make the world a better place, people trying to tell stories, people trying to empower others. Uh, and then also a lot of crazies, you know, and there's a lot of drama. And I was, um, you know, WBAI in the mid 80s, uh, it was very, very lively. And I, I was I was hooked. I was yeah. like, this is an interesting thing. This is what I want to be a part of. Of course, um, you know, going through and as a young person, uh, get you know, trying to study that in, in university, uh, study journalism. I went somewhere where there wasn't really a journalism program. Um, you know, I wasn't uh, popular enough, or I I didn't suck up to the popular kids who are running the school paper. So I didn't work at the school paper and I didn't work at the school radio station either. Um, I ended up volunteering at the NPR station in town in uh, Santa Cruz um, and ended up on, you know, as a volunteer reporter. So, um, and this is, you know, I was 19 or something. Uh, and I leveraged that to getting a internship at WBAI on the news team there. So as part of my undergraduate degree. So I uh, was working cheek by jowl with Amy Goodman in 1989. And I had incredible experiences, uh, including, you know, meeting people who are still in the news today. Like yeah. this was the election where, uh, Ed Koch was running for, I think, a fifth term or something, and he lost the primary to uh, David Dinkins. Uh, I was assigned to cover the Harrison Golden campaign. Uh, and then, uh, but I also had opportunity to talk to Rudy Giuliani, who hadn't revealed himself as a sociopath at that time. <laughs> he was still a US attorney for the Southern District of New York and a very accomplished person and really associated with um, breaking the mafia in the metropolitan, in the New York metropolitan area and really uh, highly regarded. And it's sort of shocking to me, uh, his long, slow decline, uh, the pernicious efforts of him instituting racist policies or really keeping that going in uh, the city of New York at, under his mayoralty um, and you know, I, it, it, he's nothing. I mean, it's it's absolutely shocking to to see him today. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we don't. I don't really recognize him. I don't know. I mean, I, the only two things that I remember him doing well as mayor um, was cleaning up Times Square. I think that was important. Um, and now it's like a huge commercial magnet for tourists. Um, well, I mean, I think with New York City, you know, when they eliminated 
affordable housing, yeah, you know, or eliminated these little tiny hovels or you know single room occupancy hotels or different places on the margins where people could somehow survive um, and turn all of that stuff into really expensive condos. You know, you eliminate the underclass. You know, there, there's yeah. no place for for these people to exist, and they move, you know, out into the exurbs or to another community entirely. Where did they all go? I mean, that is that is very unfortunate, and and, and unfortunately, um, any kind of sort of uh, commercial improvement improvement uh, means inevitably, um, you know the poor people, um, people right. and, you know, living in the I mean, margins I, are squeezed out. But I mean, I can also see the other side um, of, you know, what we trash as gentrification um, because I grew up in the Bronx and, um, you know, from when I was born in 1968, um, you know, I was aware, you know, or had some, I mean, I remember, you know, being like five or six and my mom would give me a dollar to go to the corner store to get a container of milk and you know or whatever and as i got older you know when I, by, by the time i turned seven it she wouldn't let me do that anymore because the neighborhood was getting more and more dangerous i mean there was like a 12 year old kid who was stabbed to death there was a 95 year old lady you know raped in her in her apartment um people climbing through the dumbwaiter in the building um you know, I, I, the the, the um, somebody blew up the mailbox with uh, explosives. Uh, people pried the numbers for the building off of the thing because it was brass, and I guess they sold it for scrap. I mean, everything. You know, and, and people were were graffitiing the street trees. I mean, it was you know, and there was broken. You know, you couldn't play in the park as a kid as a four-year-old because it was all dog shit and broken glass. So, yeah. I mean, when people say, I mean, so like the, the, the you know, uh, I mean, gentrification sucks also, but like letting a neighborhood or, you know, the, the whole um, letting things devolve and become, you know, just terrible doesn't really work. You know, it isn't really beneficial either. No, it doesn't. So I guess that begs the question that- um, But it's not like making people pay more money for rent makes them better citizens either. Right, you know, exactly. Services it's, that disappeared and people being desperate and you know, you go out in the street and half the cars are up on you know cinder blocks because people stole the wheels or the tires. I mean, people don't know what the seventies were like in New York. Oh, no, it was terrible. Now. And the thing is, my family, we immigrated to New York in the mid 70s, uh, 1976, to be exact, the bicentennial. And we actually landed in New York uh, on July 3rd. You're 19 kidding. No, July 3rd, 1976. And the next wow. day, uh, the entire city was like very noisy. <laughs> And we had no idea why. <laughs> oh, must be. I have a friend of mine from, I had a friend from elementary school and he's from, uh, he's from Baku in what's now Azerbaijan, but it was a Soviet, you know, USSR. 
And when he said he arrived, you know, emigrating Kennedy Airport and like everything was, he said like there was like an overhang, you know, coming out when you walk out of the building or something. And it was like this overhang with lights. And he's like, is all of America like this? <laughs> so I could just imagine. I remember that date uh, really well because I was, you know, eight and my mom took us down to what's now Battery Park City, which then was just like a sand pit. Um, oh, really? I mean, it, was just, it was just sand. They were, they were, had, um, you know, done a bunch of landfill and we sat out on blankets watching the tall ships. They had like a sail, you know, three masted tall ships from the yeah. or recreations from this, you know, 18th century sailing up and down the Hudson. And then there was fireworks. Remember there was a big thunderstorm and we found like a big piece of like roofing shingle or something and made a little kind of shelter. <laughs> so that's what you did on July 4th? 1976, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Now, back then, people, um, I guess there were no laws or, or people ignored if there were laws about, you know, people shooting off their own fireworks, but it was going on everywhere. Well, you know? there was yeah. very little compliance and that, you know, it was like there was uh, just so much lawlessness that things yeah. weren't necessarily enforced, which I think in a lot of ways was better. Um, what, the lawlessness? <laughs> Well, you know, now you have, you know, there's so many cops and there, you know, that you have unequal enforcement of law, right? So if you're, you know, younger or, you know, black, maybe you get arrested or hassled. And if you're, you know, the white kids, they let them do whatever the hell they want, right? And um yeah, but I don't know if that's gotten worse. I, I would think it's gotten a little better. That sort of yeah. racial profiling and, you know, blatant racial discrimination in terms of like getting pulled over and, and incarcerated and things like that. Although, I mean, there's there's definitely still a huge disparity, but I would think like in the 70s, it would have been a lot worse. No, I don't know. I'm thinking of like the stop and spritz. <laughs> you know, stop that Giuliani. Stop and frisk, that was Giuliani, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But Bloomberg continued it, you know, and it's like, you look at who got stopped and who got frisked, you know, right. versus, you know, or you see something, say something. I mean, I just, I went to a credit union yesterday to sign up for a bank account. And now apparently I have to certify that I'm not a terrorist to open a bank account. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's just insane. What the hell? What the hell has happened to this country? <clears throat> and I had a, um, they're asking me if I'm a, a are you a politically exposed person? They like, ask you that. Like, what does that mean? Like, do I read? I read the newspaper. Yeah, I'm exposed to politics. And they're like, well, are you a government employee? I'm like, no, but my mother was a public school teacher. So does that make me uh, politically, ex you know? Teachers, are they considered government employees i she was paid I, by the city of new york and i guess so you know, yeah. my grandfather both of my grandfathers were uh you know letter carriers yeah yeah 
Um, I know they ask a lot of questions about like, first, you have to prove who you are. I remember the first bank account I ever opened. I didn't, you know, I was a high school student, so I didn't have to do any of that. I just went to a local savings bank with yeah. money and got yeah. a passbook yeah. and I didn't have to prove anything. <laughs> right. Here's the money and here's it, you know, and here's it. And it, boom, easy. You know? But I mean, yeah, back then, I guess we didn't have to worry about terrorist groups. Although- it's so ridiculous, like everything- Here's the thing, there were terrorist groups. Money laundering or you're a drug dealer or like, who the hell has time for any of that? <laughs> you know, drug, drug that, dealers. deadlines. <laughs> Drug dealers have time for that. You know, you're out at the city council meeting till midnight, and then you have to like come home and write the story, and then record it and send it, and it's you know one thirty in the morning. You know, plus you know as a reporter, I've never had enough money to launder anyway, except if I you know left it in my pants pocket. Well, okay, bad joke. Sorry, you know. To be fair, though, they don't know that about you, and you know I don't know. But, if I mean, you went how to the many, bank looking how like many that, money launderers are there? You know. <laughs> And the other thing is like, you know, it's just like in California and I guess the marijuana thing, but then now that, I mean, sorry, cannabis, but now that it's legal, what, you know, but who the hell, knows? I guess it's not legal federally. I don't know. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Um, I, I hear a lot of people are leaving California that uh, since the pandemic, it's um, well, some of the things that like Newsom is doing is a little draconian and and very heavy handed. So uh, there's a huge exodus. And also, um, Good. In mean, San, yeah. well, no, but also in San Francisco, I think um, there is a huge problem of um, homelessness and also a lot of uh, I don't know. Like a lot of the Silicon Valley people are leaving. Good. Okay. I mean, housing is so incredibly expensive. Yeah. And I could, you know, I could talk for hours about California's housing crisis and why it is the way it is. Uh, of course, most the media and most people look for a simplistic reason. Uh, it's dozens of factors coming together, you know, um, Yes, there are restrictions on where you can build and how much you can build. Yes, people fight tooth and nail to protect their view from, you know, somebody building something next door. Yes, there are um, a lot of regulations, um, but, you know, it's the industry that builds and, you know, they build, you know, giant houses on tiny, on small lots. And, you know, you can't, rent a five bedroom apart, you know, you're going to buy, a five, you know, rent a five bedroom house as a single person. No. So you have like 15 people, you know, neighborhoods or towns don't want apartment buildings. So when they do approve housing, yeah. they approve single gigantic single family homes, which then are too big to really be useful. People, you know, I don't know who's buying that stuff you know, behind the sound wall, you know, a stucco place where, you know, it's a 4,000 square foot house, but you could reach out the window and hand your neighbor sugar because they're, you know, they need a cup of sugar for whatever, because the, the houses are so close together. Oh, I see. They've convinced, 
that, you know, I've gone to these, I used to be a housing reporter and the industry was convinced that people don't want to, um, that yard maintenance is a pain in the neck or it's too, too much of a hassle in today's busy world. So people don't want to have backyards, you know, at that point, you may as well live in a high rise because, yeah, you know, yuck, you, you drive, you have to drive all the way out to the suburbs or something. Uh, but in any case, um, housing's very, very expensive, but the weather, you know, the weather's really good. And there's been a whole industry for 50 years telling people to move to California and how California is, you know, you can wear a bikini and meet movie stars and, you know, sit around in a hammock all day. I mean, I don't know what the people's ideation is. Um, you know, it's not, you know, you're paying 60% of your salary for rent and sitting in uh, your car in a traffic jam for an hour and a half each way to work. Because um, I think that's more of the reality of what California is for a lot of people. In terms of an exodus, yeah, people are fed up with the housing costs. They're fed up with the commute. Um, there are other opportunities, but, you know, I'm no great fan of Newsom, but I don't think that, you know, I think at this, um, where I was living, where I lived for 12 years, where I just moved from two days ago, uh, in interior Northern California is a lot more, it's a lot, it's, it is very little like what you think of as a non-Californian. I mean, it's a, sort of forgotten part of the state. It's very sparsely populated, but it's very, very conservative. Um, we have a Republican congressman, Republican state senator, Republican assemblyman, uh, and you know people like Devin Nunes make the press for being foolish, but um, our guy never made the press because he was not as articulate, but he's just as wacky. Um, and People are very, very conservative up there. They're fearful uh, and they like nothing better than to bash California. There's a lot of uh, neo-Nazi activity, a lot of racism and, um, you know, people who are pushed to the margins. They're sort of working class, rural, poor uh, who are being, you know, somewhat manipulated by the farmers uh, into blaming non-white people for their plight. Uh, and, but then they also see the, the crazy regulations in California where, you know, if you want to do this, you have to have a license. You want to do this, you have to have a license. You have to have a permit for this and the fees for that. And much of why much of what's messed up about California can be traced back to Proposition 13. Long story short, it reduced property taxes and froze property taxes. And, you know, state governments raise money, you know, there, there are certain sources of income. There's property tax, there's sales tax, and there's, you know, payroll tax, essentially. Now, if you say, okay, we're gonna stop property tax. Well, you know, the cost of government still goes up so if they free they have to make up the they have to get the money from somewhere else mm -hmm. and so what happens is oh somebody rolls through a stop okay your property tax is only three thousand dollars a year but the streets are full of potholes so you drove you know your your car is messed up and and you have to spend 
2000 on repairs because you're broken axle or, oh, you rolled through a stop sign. Boom, they pulled you over. Well, it's a $200 fine, but they tacked on $800 of court costs because of Prop 13. You know, they, they have a uh, court fee. I got, I actually was, um, wow. I got arrested or given a ticket for jaywalking or something stupid in Pleasanton in the suburbs 20 years ago. And the case was dismissed by the Alameda County Courthouse or whatever the hell it was. And I, but I had to pay a, a $50 court dismissal fee. So I had what? to pay, you know, I mean, so like, yeah, people are pissed off because it's like it never ends. You know, you open a small shop and they're like, oh, you want to sell produce? Well, you have to have the county inspector come and calibrate your 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 scale to make sure that you're not ripping off the customers. Right. Well, it's $500 for the scale inspection, right? So if you're like a retailer, it's like you finally get $50 in the drawer and now they want to, you know, and I have to give somebody 500 bucks that your scale is accurate. Or another thing like now, you know, my ex-wife, I've recently divorced, or somewhat recently divorced, uh, we purchased a house in Chico and Chico was, um, you know, it's off the beaten track and it's in the interior. Uh, it's not near the ocean. It was very, it's very affordable, you know, by California standards. Um, we were on a septic system because Prop 13 the city no longer had the funds to extend the sewer system. So you have a city of, you know, 80,000 people where 25,000 are still on septic systems. And what that means is that your black water, your poop and your urine and whatever you flush down the toilet, you know, is filtered on site and goes through a leach field and then goes down into the earth and the really? other thing i yes. always thought i always thought septic system was you have a septic tank and it kind of stays there well the tank what happens is that the tank is has bacteria in it and the bacteria break down and digest the really bad stuff that comes out of you know that collects or comes out of your body or whatever and then as more water is added the level of it rises a little bit and then it goes the the excess from the very top it'll flow slowly down this pipe and the pipe that it goes into has a bunch of holes in it and what you do is you bury that pipe in a big field of gravel and that's called the leach field so once the water that's been treated by the bacteria in your tank goes out into this leach field it'll kind of get filtered through the gravel and then filtered in the ground. And like, you know, a good percentage of a bad stuff gets washed out. The other thing in Chico is that they're using groundwater, right? So the water company- Yeah, that's a recipe for disaster right there. So the water source, yeah, the water source is an aquifer. So they're pumping water, the drinking water from underground, right? And meanwhile, you're dumping the sewage into the aquifer. You know, it gets filtered by the soil, but you know, the bad stuff is building up. Well, the state of 
California. I don't know what, what happened, but eventually they finally got, and I'm sorry this is taking so long to get to the point here. Yes, what is the point? What is the point? They said, they sent a letter, we're gonna extend the sewer to your neighborhood. We we're like, great, because the septic system, like septic systems have to be replaced every 30 years. They have a lifespan of about 30 years. The septic system from our house was original. So it was about 75 years old. Uh, it was more wow. than double its lifespan. It was not working that well and would occasionally have issues. Um, and so we were really excited that they're extending the sewer system. Well, because of Proposition 13 and some other legislation, you have to pay for the incremental cost of the entire sewer plant, the construction of the sewage plant. And they have accountants, you know, people making hundreds of thousands of dollars, figuring out how much each person's incremental cost is, right? So they're spending all this money to calculate the actual cost of your of the benefits so that then they can charge you. So we get this whole printout of if you want to join, connect your home to the sewer system, they wanted $25,000 in permit fees, okay? Mm. I could hire somebody to connect it, dig a trench and put in the pipes for 2,500 bucks, okay? But mm -hmm. the permits, the licenses to do that cost 10 times that amount. Yeah. So that's uh, insane because then you're, you know, People can't afford that. They don't see the benefit in it. And, you know, they can't afford it all at once. And then you keep having 25,000 people pooping into your drinking water. I mean, it's, it's totally moronic. Now, truth that what the state of California came through, they declared our neighborhood a nitrate non-compliance zone, which I guess the septic tanks were leaching into this um, seasonal flood um, channel that then connected with the Sacramento River, which is then the drinking water for other cities and towns downstream. So the state of California paid 90% of the permit fees. So I ended up being able to do it because it only cost like 5,000 bucks. But like somebody who, you know, people who were like two blocks away and outside of the zone, they're like, you know, so yeah, this is, yeah, it seems to me it's it's very inefficient. It's a very inefficient way of running a, a township, a city, and, and a state. So, I mean, if you impose like universal taxes, whether it's sales, income, whatever, then there's your revenue source. But, you know, if you don't have that, then this right. is exactly what you have to do. You have to charge for every little thing that um, the local right. or state government needs to do. Which so is like highly Oregon, inefficient. Well, like Oregon, they don't have, there's no sales tax on anything. In Oregon? Okay. Yeah, zero sales tax. In Washington state, um, there's no, is there no, there's no payroll tax. Hmm. You know, so they make it up elsewhere. You know, they charge more for property tax. Yeah. So, you know, property tax is higher. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, I'll have to say that as a, cons a as a um, from a consumer perspective, um, you know, from a perspective of a person who has to pay for things, 
um, that it's, for me anyway, it's a lot easier and I think a lot more efficient if there's just a flat rate that everybody pays and then everything is sort of included. And this is this goes to just, you know, even retail, like, you know, how um, you buy anything and there's a cost of the thing and then there's sales tax and then there's, you know, in terms of services, there's service fee, there's and in some cases, it's gratuities and this and that. And by the time the bill is done, it's like twice the what you expected you were going to pay. Yeah. And it's, you know, why not just say, this is how much it is and everything is included. Yeah. And the thing, right. that, the thing that sucks about sales tax is that it's really regressive. You know, I mean, yeah, rich, you know, rich people do buy more things than poor people. But like if you're, you know. If I'm buying, um, if I'm buying a shirt, yeah, it costs the same for everyone. You're paying the same amount of tax, right? yeah. So proportionately, proportion of your, yeah, of your, you know, of your income, you know, it's a bigger percentage of your income. Well, here's the thing. I mean, how else would you impose a sales tax then? I mean, it's not like yeah, you well, have I mean, to that's the, that's the produce your t- annual tax return everywhere you go and say hey i only made this much last year so i get to pay a smaller percentage like some states you know there's some things that a lot of things aren't taxed like if it's a quote-unquote necessity right like food like food isn't taxed but you know or new jersey clothing isn't taxed or um what are they um you know and then there's the whole arguments about like hey why are feminine products Tax, you know, why is there sales tax on feminine products? That's a necessity too. Maybe not for men, you know. Really? They're, they're, they excluded yeah. that? Yeah. The, I mean, there's yeah. some fighting about it on, you okay. know, in some states. I'm not really sure where. I don't know whether it's California or not. Yeah. So uh, I just moved yesterday, as I said. Yes. Totally How do you like your new apartment? Uh, it's pretty interesting i mean it's it's kind of cool um you know i don't know what it's going to be like you know um it's a decent size um and i'm off in a rural pretty rural place i mean there's no uh, oh you're out of half and half You, you can't walk to the corner store you know it's vineyards baby well, that's nice and scenic. Oh, you said you're near Sonoma, right? Okay. I'm in Sonoma County. I am just west of the town of Sebastopol, okay. which is west of the town of the city of Santa Rosa, which is, I, I think it's the biggest city in the county seat in the county. But um, so it's north, I'm north of San Francisco, about 50 miles. So yeah. it's... Um, you know, suburbia sort of starts to die out, you know, and if you go off of the main highway, it starts to get more rural, you know, and then also I'm on the coastal side. So there's very major, major uh, restrictions on development. Mm. So it's like this bucolic rolling green hills, you know, that are just, I mean, I don't know. I'm like pinching myself. It's so beautiful. I can't, 
believe it's real. Yeah, it, well, it's, it would be great for biking, right? You're, so you're an avid biker. I don't know about avid anymore. Well, that's what, you're, I, that's what I the love... bio you sent me says. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, uh, maybe I, I, I aspire. You know, I love bicycling. And in Chico, where I lived uh, most recently for 12 years, um, it is much more like the rest of the, <laughs> the U.S. in that, well, I don't know. I, after living in, I lived in the Bay Area for many, many years, and the climate's very, very uh, mild. You know, it doesn't get the, that hot in the summer. It never gets that cold in the wintertime. You know, you can, you can bike almost any, every day of the year. Um, when I moved to Chico in interior Northern California, the summers, it got quite warm. Uh, there were days or over when there were nights in July and August when the overnight low is 80 degrees and the daytime high is 112, 115, 118. Uh, and wow. yeah, you just don't want to be outside. I would get up at six in the morning and go for a bike ride before it got too hot. Um, but the, also the roads that, you know, it's a not a very wealthy area. So the roads are um, what they call gravel overlay or chip seal where the county, basically they, a truck drops a layer of glue and then another truck drops a layer of uh, tiny pebbles and then another you know, and then a steamroller goes over it or something, and then that's it. So if you're, the fatigue from just the constant vibration, um, I couldn't pull out, you know, eight, go riding 75 miles because my wrists would just get so much fatigue in my butt, you know, it just like, you would just hurt, you know, it would get so hot uh, and, you know, that like 30, 40 miles was enough. Uh, and there, but here, I'm surprised that you could even last 30, 40 miles. My goodness. <laughs> well, you know, it takes, it takes, um, it takes something. Now I, you know, being the ashamed to admit I'm middle age that I had a bit of a midlife crisis. Um, but as a reporter, you know, I don't have a ton of money and, you know, going through a divorce and whatever. So uh, what I did was that I found online the exact same make and model and color of the bicycle that I had that I learned how to ride on. I didn't learn how to ride a bike until I was 15 or something. In high school, yeah. Yeah, 14, really? 15, yeah. And hey, so- Hey, do you know, I still don't know how to ride a bike. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> Um, I rode a bike uh, one summer when I was nine. Uh, before that, I remember back in Korea, we had a tricycle. This is when I was like, what, five, six, seven or, or something. Um, yeah, when I was nine, um, uh, my father found this sort of beat up old bike that somebody threw out and he was, he's quite, he was quite handy. Well, he's not around anymore. Uh, but um, so he brought it home and uh, he fixed it up and it was, it worked perfectly fine. So me and my brother, we rode that one summer. Um, and then I think it broke again because I don't remember riding it again 
uh, after that. So it must have broken again. And at that point, it wasn't really worth fixing anymore. So other than that, like, I don't have any experience biking. So now as an adult, um, sorry, I'm, I'm like stealing time away from you. But um, so... <laughs> Believe like, me, I, I know my whole story already. So I'm interested in you too. So about, I don't know how many years ago, like it was definitely over 10 years ago. Um, me and uh, a couple of friends of mine um, for, for several years, we did a lot of, you know, short road trips together, like three or four days. And one time we, I forget exactly where we went, but uh, the activity that we decided to do was, you know, bike around because it was, you know, we were surrounded by nature and there were some like really nice parks, you know, like national parks and, and things like that. So we went to a bike rental. Now, my two friends, they're experienced bikers, you know, especially, especially one of them. She bikes around all the time. And here I am. Uh, how old was I? Was it? I must have been in my 30s, late 30s or something. Um, and, uh, and I'm thinking like, you know, it's like riding a bike, right? That expression, like once you never forget. Yeah. If you've done it once, you don't forget. Um, well, yes, it's been so long that my body did forget how to actually ride a bike. So after, after, uh, trying out so many different types of bikes and this is a bike rental. So it's not like they have a huge selection in terms of types. Uh, you know, they have like the standard size and then maybe the kid size or something. And, and you know, I, and I tried them both and it didn't work. And they finally brought out an adult size tricycle <laughs> yeah. with a big old basket in the rear. So my friends and I were like, okay, well, they really wanted to go biking. And, and I was like, okay, fine, I'll take the tricycle. So we piled on like all the, all our, you know, bags onto the basket so it made my load heavier yeah so like not only are you yeah. pulling three wheels and you're yeah. inexperienced and now you have all the extra weight and they're like come on everyone go get some exercise and you're like yeah you know. i was i was definitely like lagging behind them and they're like off oh, and whatever as long as i could see where they were and it was fine <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. But yeah, no, I, I don't know how to ride a bike. And then years later, I decided, okay, finally, I'm going to learn how to ride. So I actually bought a bicycle and uh, and I took it out. And after a few face plants into the ground, I was like, no, I'm just way too old. And because um, when you're little, as a child, when you fall. Nose. The first time I... I mean, when I learned how to ride my bike, yeah. I broke my nose. I crashed into a row of parked cars because a, a vehicle was coming by and got clo too close to me and I got spooked and I crashed into a row of parked cars and I broke my nose. Um, but what I would recommend, like my niece doesn't know how to ride and I'm like, I got knee pads. I'm like, you put on leather gloves because you're gonna fall. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you put on a helmet and you, you know, and you know, and, and also I would go with. And it, the it's not fun falling as an adult. It hurts when you're a yeah. kid. It doesn't hurt as much. <laughs> yeah, no shit. It's a lot easier to get seriously injured. Yeah, so I I kind of gave it up and I gave the bike away. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm done trying to learn how to ride. Well, it's I have fine. three bikes. I have that um that bike from well, 
the funny thing was that the bike that I got that was the same one as the, the first bike that I had, um, when I got it, I went to the bike shop and I was like 14 or 15 and I wanted, I wanted a, uh, I'd done all this research and I was going to buy a Fuji Del Rey and I went to this bike shop and of course I don't think there was a few, Fuji dealer and he ended up selling me a Lotus Eclair, which was a touring bike and I actually <laughs> love it uh, and it's, um, you know, it's not something that people would think is, is a great bike, you know, it's, it's not some sought after rarity or, you know, something that was like ultra light Italian or, you know, handcrafted or using some special method, right? Yeah, or I don't know bikes. Special yeah. materials. Yeah. Um, but I love it and I love the way it rides and it's, it's it, it was innovative for its time and it's good. And then I also bought a, um, oh, but when I bought the bike as a teenager, the guy in the bike shop was like, well, you're 14, you're still growing. So you should get the 23 inch frame because you'll grow into it. You know, six months from now, if I sell you this one, you're gonna be too, well, I must've stopped growing that day. And I, <laughs> I rode that bike for 15 years. It was too big for me. And if you're a guy, and you're riding a bike that's too big for you. Um, crummy things can happen. And I remember one specifically was that I was riding down uh, Solano Avenue in all in Berkeley into Albany, California. And just before San Pablo Avenue, there was a sewer grate, you know, one of the old style sewer grates and the front wheel went right down into the sewer grate and got trapped. And I went down and my feet weren't, you know, my crotch hit the top tube before my feet touched the ground. And yeah, that's not graphic at all. Thank you. <laughs> and I was like, ah, you know, I remember this lady was like, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm like, I think so, but I don't think I'll ever have children. <laughs> well, Going back to journalism, I think you have a story about like how you, uh, what inspired you to want to become oh. a reporter. Yeah, so you wanna. This, this is some weird, you know, this weird stuff. And when I was really little, um, my father split before I was born or shortly after I was born. Um, and my mom, you know, I. I remember as a kid seeing all the president's men in the theater. You know, I saw um, the Three Days of the Condor, which is, you know, CIA stuff. Um, I think I may have even seen the Parallax View, but um, all the president's men made a big impression on me as a small child. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess I was always in tune with that stuff and people ask you know what's your first you know I'm pretty sure I remember the moon landing mm. you know which would have been what I would have been 14 and a half months old yeah you know I really remember you know the Vietnam War now granted that dragged on for quite some time but I'm pretty sure I remember the invasion of Cambodia I certainly remember Richard Nixon, you know, 
being president, uh, I remember the uh, New Year's Eve of 1969 going into 1970. So I was not even two years old. Um, so anyway, all the president's men made a big impression on me and I, I sort of wanted to, uh, to do that. And, you know, but the funny thing is that in grade school or actually in high school and college and university, I had a terrible time with deadlines. <laughs> I was a huge procrastinator. Um, I couldn't get, you know, I love, I like the adrenaline rush of doing it at the last minute, you know, staying up late. Pulling yeah. the, not necessarily pulling an all-nighter, but staying up late to get it done, you know. I remember it. plenty of all-nighters I had, I pulled, yeah. But that's, there's definitely a, an adrenaline rush that, yeah. So I, I think that I sort of confronted my weakness by Which making is? it my career, you know, because I remember in college there was some paper I needed to write and I, I couldn't do it and I'd had like writer's block for months and I, like I didn't even turn it in until like, a semester later, you know, I was like begging the professor and then like apologizing, like, oh, I didn't do it. I still haven't done it. You know? Ah, I see what uh, you mean about, yeah. So that rush of, because reporters, you have to, you have to write it pretty much right then and there and send it in, right? You know, Is that depends. what you mean? I mean, if it's breaking news or if it's, you know, a bigger feature, you know, something that's more, you know, that's a trend or something. I mean, if you're covering a meeting story, you know, and the city council meeting was Tuesday night, you have to have it, you know, yeah. it has to air Wednesday morning or it has to be in Wednesday's newspaper. Um, if, you know, but if it's like a, you know, big project about, uh, you know, some issue or whatever, yeah, it could drag on forever. You know, you could be working on it a long time so so you're not uh big on like in investigative reporting inter as an assignment uh you know i have worked at so many different news organizations mainly newspapers uh and radio stations and to be honest uh, i've never been in an investigative unit i've never been you know i had an editor tell me we're not paying you to sit around here reading documents Mm -hmm. like how do you do research you know i mean are you serious i'm not paying you know so uh you know in terms of like that's kind of an odd thing to say yeah you know i mean it was it was insane and she's um you know she had a battle of wills i mean that, that was a really interesting thing because she had been an editor there and then uh, she had some kind of personal issue and left and I came on in the period where she you know she was gone for two or three years it was a small little paper uh, and then she came back and she brushed aside the other they they hired some really young kid to be the editor so I was working for this younger kid and she came in, came back and she had to like mark her territory and like it make it known that she was the boss and um it was very uh, she was she was downright nasty yeah uh, and you know really trying to force us out of the place and the other guy left and then eventually we you know we became you know 
pretty close. Yeah. You know, so friendly. So what what about um so is it is it specifically journalism or is it telling the truth or exposing things or what exactly is it about reporting or what you do? I think I think initially, you know, coming from the this is a it's a it's a forum, it's a way to like it's a way to create justice without having to go to law school. Ah, interesting. It's the first draft of history, but instead of being a history professor and having to get a PhD, I mean, you, you still get a shitty salary, but <laughs> there's a little bit less schooling that goes in. Um, you know, you have crummy job opportunities. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, Clark Kent, it's His Girl Friday, which is an excellent movie, or which is the 1940 yeah. movie His Girl Friday, which is a remake of the 1932 um, film, uh, The Front Page. Either one is excellent. It's been remade since then. Clark you know, Gable, isn't it? Clark no, Gable. No, no, no. Uh, in His Girl Friday, it's Rosalind Russell, and the guy is, um, I can't remember. Is it Cary Grant? No. Oh yeah, I think it's Cary Grant. It's Cary Grant. Yeah, for some reason I, I I don't know. I was thinking Cary Grant, his face, but I don't know why I said Clark Gable. Yeah. And then you know you hide the murderer in the roll top desk. I mean that's a great. I uh, I actually didn't see that movie, so don't spoil oh. it for me. <laughs> you oh sorry, you should definitely see it. It's it's like vintage 1940s. It's all and yeah. it's it was a play that was turned into a movie. Yeah. And it's all rapid fire, smart ass dialogue. Uh, it's genius and it's frenetic. And it shows the old school thing. The reporters were these shambling, you know, guys who slept in their suits and were chain smoking all the time. When I um, met uh, in the early 90s, I met this woman who was sort of the, you know, one of the great loves of my life. And she was from Berkeley and she was running away from her own demons and wanted to, uh, you know, she wasn't going to finish university and was said she was going to go to Southeast Asia and asked, you know, told me, you can come along if you want. You can join me if you want. So I sold all my crap. Uh, when was this again? 1993. So this is right after, soon after you graduated college yeah. yeah yeah and um yeah i mean i graduated i should have graduated in 1990 but i'd run out of money and i was homeless and i was living in my car and uh I that's a up... typical californian dream yeah. <laughs> that's okay um i don't know if you know my story i never actually graduated college oh wow yeah oh yeah you didn't know okay yeah i never graduated so but that's a story for <laughs> That's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah. um, but it took anyway, me forever. A what? It took me like I, you know, so I didn't finish, yeah. and I moved up to Berkeley, and I was working in a as a delivery driver for a bakery and for a, for this salvage place, and you know, I, I did that for three years because it was 1990, and there was a big recession, and nobody's going to hire you know, some kid to be a reporter. And that's one of the shitty things about being 
Generation X was that when I was young, there was no opportunity because they, nobody wanted to hire somebody with no experience, right? Uh, and it was wait your turn, wait your turn, wait your turn. The baby boomers had all the jobs. Uh, mm. Finally, now the baby boomers are finally retiring, but they're like, we're looking for younger listeners. We need to relate to younger people. Uh, we're not, you know, so like I've waited my turn and now there's no opportunities because I'm too experienced. You know, now they want to, yeah. well, we're afraid we're going to lose connection with the younger, you know, so now they want to, now they want to give the jobs to people with no experience. So we weren't experienced when we were young and now that we're experienced, we're obsolete. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we Gen X's were screwed. Is that it? Is that what sort of characterizes our generation? I think so. <laughs> the screwed generation. <laughs> yeah. You know, but we had the grunge and we don't care and we're underachievers and, you know. I, I'm sorry. No, um, I will this. not claim grunge or that whole thing that happened in the 90s. I think I still think of myself as a 70s and 80s generation, not like 90s sort of, I don't know. I think I was asleep in the 90s, uh, culturally. Like I didn't pay attention to anything that happened in the 90s. What did happen in the 90s? I was like gone most of the, you know, I was out of the country from 93 through 97 which I, you know, I guess it's only really- the Yeah, were you overseas? You were trying, oh, that's right. That's when you left. That's right. That's that's what you were, you were starting that story. Sorry, I interrupted you. So- oh, no, no. I mean, it was, it was, you know, you and, left. And it's a well that I keep, you know, that I go back to, uh, to the point of- How long were you out there? And uh, where were you? Let's see. We, le we she, she convinced me to buy a one-way ticket to Bangkok uh, and we flew on China Airlines via Taipei uh and landed in bangkok in august of 1993 and we traveled around her brother was living at an ashram in java in central java in a town called solo in the ancient um castle or fortress or whatever wall you know inside the old walled city or whatever and uh, we went from bangkok visited traveling you know vacationing in malaysia and then we took the short flight from singapore down to jakarta and then we went overland on third class bus uh so it's about it's about 400 miles but the roads there are really poor so it was like a 27 hours mm. on this bus with um they take out the seats and they put in more seats or they put in like wooden benches and they're all like crammed together so they can fit like 75 people on the bus and they're all smoking those clove cigarettes <laughs> with the windows open and the dust flowing in and there was like well, I'm surprised there are windows. I, I would have thought that it's just open. <laughs> open. I mean, it was it was something else. It was something else. It was something wow. Else. And there was like some guy. I finally dozed off after you know sitting upright on a wooden bench, crammed together. You know, for 20 hours, I finally dozed off, and 
the guy behind me had like some fighting cocks or something and they started peck in a basket they started pecking at my feet and woke woke me up and then um yeah you know it's, you know I, I got to ride on an ox cart in banyuwangi mm. i got to take the you know third class trains everywhere and um i lived in a tiny like 50 square foot room in bangkok or maybe a hundred square foot room in Bangkok with my ex that was like $40 US a month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How, That's how, low rent. So now I'm paying $1,800 and it's killing me. Yeah. Um, well, that's Southeast Asia. And that was shared. Which... So it was only 20, you know, I only had to pay $20 a month. You know, so we're really like, you know, uh, and it was it was it was hard living there. Um, the commute to the to the, I think it was about six or seven miles across Bangkok, which is one of the biggest cities on the planet. It's about twenty five million people. It's about six miles to the newspaper. We had to take two different buses. It was before they built their sky train, elevated train or subway, and it would take an hour and forty five minutes each way. Wow. And more at night if the police were running like a motorcycle race. So the police would block the streets and they'd have like these big motorcycle races where they, they'd bet on stuff. So then you'd be like on the bus and then stuck, you know, for 40 minutes or whatever. Wait, so the police will just take over the streets and just race? Like they would run the motor, they'd be like running in an illegal motorcycle race for gambling. Oh, you're kidding. No. <clears throat> Wait, so yeah, I mean, it's like Bangkok. I mean, Thailand, you know, it's um, the police earn almost nothing and they have to buy their own uniforms and their weapons and the bullets and all that stuff. So or at least back then. Um, so it sort of inspires corruption because the only way that you can yeah. survive financially as a police officer is shaking people down. You know, so so they're dry. they're actually engaging in the race and and taking bets or okay okay so they're in the race so it's not like they're I, no, they were, I think they're running the race, the race you know like organizing it or something uh, all I know is that you'd be on the bus and then you get stopped and you'd be stuck for half an hour because they're running a race up ahead and they block yeah. the streets off. Well, I was in Bangkok. I I wasn't. I was I was there, but I wasn't there for very long. Um, I was only there for like maybe three or four days or something. Um, so I, after I left my corporate job several years ago, I went traveling and um, I was looking for destinations and I ended up in Southeast Asia, mainly because I wanted to go to Bali because I had a friend there. Um, but anyway, yeah, I was in Bangkok for a few days and it just seemed like another big old commercial, you know, touristy city to me, maybe because I didn't stay there long enough to really see everything. It's so, I mean, I haven't yeah. been there, you know, I haven't been back to Asia. Well, I, I was in Cambodia a few years ago or I mean, more than were, 10 years ago now. Yeah, but, but you were there like in the 90s. So that I guess would have been a very different yeah uh, you know i don't know what thailand's like 
now. You oh, know? but you know, when I was there, it was like, you know, people were just getting cell phones. Yeah. You know? And there were, but there weren't internet cafes. I mean, if I wanted, you know, my mother was still living. And, you know, if I wanted to communicate with the outside world, you know, I would go and buy an aerogram from the post office and send somebody an aerogram. And, you know, which is like a, it's like ultra light paper that has like a glue, like a, you know, glue from an envelope. So it's sort of like a piece of paper that's also, that's its own and that folds up and you glue it together. Yeah, 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 I remember those, yeah. You know, and so uh, it's a little bit lighter and maybe, you know, would get to New York in 10 days. Um, So if I wrote my mom, you know, maybe it would be three weeks before I get a reply, you know, from the day I sent if everything worked out. So like on our, we worked six days a week and on the seventh day, uh, we'd take the ferry boat all the way to the past the Boomerod Brewery where they make the Singha beer uh, to the main post office and get our mail post restant. Because if we had mail sent to our place, the kids in the neighborhood who were studying English wanted to find out what foreigners said. So they would steal our mail so I had all of our mail sent post restant. So on the, you know, working six days a week and then on the seventh day, we'd go get our mail. So what were you, do- what kind of work were you doing out there? I was uh, working for this paper, which is now defunct. And uh, I was a rewriter, um, basically rewriting translations from the Thai, the mm. same company's Thai newspaper, you know, um, copy editing stuff. Maybe a couple of different. I did. I did a little bit of writing, but it was mainly copy editing. So it wasn't. You weren't writing in Thai. You no, no, no. So, so this was translated from Thai yeah, to English. It was English. An English language. I mean, this was the yeah. stupid thing, and that the company itself, the newspaper, was a fraud uh, designed to get so that it would be easier to to lure investors in Europe to invest in this publishing company by if they said they had an English language newspaper. Now, you know, Bangkok at the time, I don't know what it's like today, but I mean, nobody speaks English. I mean, zero, I mean, really very, very few people speak English. Now, granted it's 25 million, 30 million people they had three English language newspapers at the time, but nobody spoke English. You know, yeah, there are a lot of expats, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> actually, when I, I mean, this is 2017, um, um, it's probably because I stuck to like mostly touristy areas. Uh, I didn't have any trouble getting around. Most people spoke, spoke English. I mean, like, you know, people in restaurants and hotels and, you know, um, wow. Yeah, I mean, all the tourist sites, you know, places. I didn't mm-hmm. have to say anything in Thai. Really? Yeah. I picked, I picked up quite a bit. You know, I I find I'm I'm okay. They say ka mimic- a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mimicking accents. Yeah. Well, that's ka is just polite, you know, being polite. But um, my ex, she had, um, you know. She, she's from Berkeley, she's a Jewish gal, and she 
wanted, she was fascinated with Japan and wanted to study East Asian languages and cultures at Columbia. And she studied Japanese for years. And we went to Japan and, you know, people would, um, people would assume that you couldn't speak Japanese. Yeah. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't try to listen that hard. And I guess, cause she spoke with it. She got kind of frustrated with, because I think I was better, even though my grasp of the language was tiny, I was better at mimicking the accent than her. So people would listen to me or try to figure out what the hell I was saying, even if it was totally crazy. <laughs> Where she had much more formal training, you know. So, um, so going back to journalism. Sorry. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no. It was something I picked up when you were talking about it earlier. Um, it, it almost sounded like you saw reporters and journalists as kind of folk heroes, almost. You know, it kind of had that sort of, you know, idealized kind of. Uh, yeah, I mean, look at how. I mean, yeah. look at how we were acculturated, or at least you know, I mean, having been born, you know you know, watching this stupid black and white, you know, Superman reruns on Channel 9, you know, fighting a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Right, you but know. that was Superman. It wasn't the reporter. Well, no, it was Clark Kent, right? Oh, so, right, right, right. Clark Kent Mark is Peter the reporter. Parker was a, photo you know, the photographer, you know. Oh, you're kidding. You know, now that you're saying, yes, you're right. Even, even with their day jobs, they were kind of out there for the people yeah and the you know so it was like the media and you know um it was it's 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 a way to make impact it's you know i'm fascinated by history you know i absolutely love history but um there's no i mean it will, you become a historian and you know i mean you write books or you're teaching at a university or something like that and you know there's just that's no longer valued you know everything now is stem everything is how can we make money how can i monetize mm. this or that how can i you know and there's culture is no longer important it's science and technology how can we figure out some way to lay more people off or pay people even less or exploit more people. Yeah, I'm going to actually pause right there. Um, okay. So I actually need to have a bathroom break. So I'm going to. Okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do the same. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to pause the recording. Uh, I just opened a window. It's still kind of chilly here. We're supposed to go up to about 60 or 58 or something. 60 or 58. Yeah, but um, over here, it just snowed for two days. <laughs> yeah. So chilly is relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, the other day was it was uh, I was hiking on the Sacramento River with my ex-wife and um, and it was like 80 degrees, you know, just like last weekend. Um. Yeah, I, I'm actually very impressed that you stay friendly with your exes because that, oh, that's not something that I, I don't think I can do very well. Well, <laughs> we're I, still friends. Uh, what? Uh, that, that might be a little bit personal, but I mean, we're still friends. I mean, we sort of had a... Uh, yeah, but school. our relationship the, was a record three days, if you remember. 
Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I, you know, I was so immature and stupid. Um, also, um, just for people who are listening, since we're on the subject, this is back in high school. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I don't, I, maybe you want to edit this out, but I mean, you know. Uh, I don't, I don't care. I don't know. We were sort of, I mean, I, I, you know. I, I was sort of thinking that we would be, you know, our firsts. And, oh. <laughs> and then, and I was um, um, too stupid and too, too, too wimpy and too, um, you know, um, confused. Sorry, and... hold on a second. Sorry, hold on. I'm, I'm being summoned. <laughs> hold on. Ah. I know this is, I'm going to have to. Ah, uh, fuck. I'm going to have to pause here. Okay, so we'll pick up where you left off because I think this is interesting. I didn't start yet. Say it again. <laughs> this is, okay, for everyone who's listening, this is getting really personal, but no. it's fine. What, what happened? Ultra real around here, but man, I was so crestfallen, confused, or, you know. You were an idiot. Yeah, I was. I was yeah. a total asshole, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't have gone out with myself. But I was still. I was a bit. Heart, I was really heartbroken when, you know, you you hooked up by Peter Kelly, and oh, I was Wait, so crestfallen. How do you know about but that? I also remember when you know I called you after nine on nine eleven because you worked. I I realized I was working at the Oakland Tribune. And then I was like going through the day and I realized he worked at the World Trade Center and I Across called the you street like, don't it. ever fucking call me again. Wait, I said that? Yeah, I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy. I can't believe, I'm so glad to hear your voice. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? I was on the subway, I was late for work and I turned the train around at 34th Street. Don't ever fucking call me again. I No, I don't think I would have said fucking call you again. Right, no, really? Wait, I actually said that. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And that's no, that's totally okay. But that's why you know that's why there was another like 10 year or 15 year um, clause in our, you know, yeah. Dating. But I mean, that's not how I remember it. I remember it very differently. Like we were really close for like part of 11th grade or something, and part of 12th uh, grade. No, just senior year. Okay. Um, you were closer part of senior year. Yeah. And, you know, now when you think about it, that was like, so we're in this, you know, like small crew, you know, for a few months, 30 years ago, what relevance does that have today? But yet we're still, you know, it's friends. the same circle of friends. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, people that I've spent a lot more time with, you know, yeah. more recently. There's something about being young that's so, everything's so dramatic and important. <laughs> and you're, you know, it's the first time for, you know, that you're doing all these things. So everything sort of sticks with you. It's well, when memories are made. It's if when, it, if it makes you, know, you feel you're like old you... and sitting in your rocking chair, you know, like that's what's going to bring a smile to your face is these adventures that you had as a young person and that, you know, yeah, you know, I remember stuff from when I was 17 or 16 or 18, not when I was 35 or something. 
Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, you were my first kiss. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, first kiss on the mouth. Um, wow. I have kissed boys on the cheek before. So, uh-huh. but I guess that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember one. Yeah. Um, but we, um, we spent the night in Hoboken at my friend's place. Yeah, but nothing happened, everyone. Well, yeah, yeah. there was a lot of cuddling. Yeah. Um, a lot of cuddling. I don't think I slept, the, you know, the entire evening, but. I, I remember I got really drunk because I, I mixed drinks. I got, oh my gosh, I got so drunk. It was, it was terrible. Whoa, uh, so no, I it wasn't drunk. I got sick um, because we had wine and then we had something like pina colada or something with some, like, I remember a white drink. Oh. Yeah, and it all got you know, like really. So you puked, and I still made out with you. That's like that's being seventeen. Well, I probably brushed my teeth after I puked. <laughs> I hope so. I remember we had to do this whole big song and dance to like, you know, I had to like tell my mom some bullshit story about where I was gonna be, and you had to uh, tell your I, folks some story. Probably, I don't remember what I told them. But it's out now. <laughs> Uh-oh. Was the statute of limitations run out? What was that like 85, 1985 when that happened? I mean. 86. My mom's been dead for 15 years. So I don't think, you know. Yeah, it was It was after, it was our senior year. It was after we, gra- right after we graduated. So it was 1986. Wow. Yeah. That summer before we all went off to college. Yeah. Wait, so wait a minute. How do you know about Peter Kelly? Who told you? Because I don't think I I did. When? After it happened, I guess. I don't think so. Why would I I told you? I don't think I told you. I think it was Hillary. I think Hillary told you. Because I probably told Hillary. Okay. Maybe Hillary spilled the beans. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, since she's not here, we could blame it on her i don't know but i'll be talking to her actually um she'll be in the next in march yeah no i'll be talking to her in march and so maybe i'll bring it up with her and see if she remembers (laughs) 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 oh that's funny huh this is interesting okay so first of all i want to apologize for the 9-11 call i wasn't that's not how i remember it that's not how i remember it but if if i did say all that I am so sorry. No, and it doesn't matter. And I was yeah. like, I was nearly 20 before I had spent, you know, before I had uh, intercourse with the woman. I mean, I was like months <laughs> away from turning 20. And like, you know, my ex-wife, my, not my, you know, my first, I mean, she was like, you know, out there when she was 12. Yeah. <laughs> How did we get into this? We were talking about folk here, uh, the reporters being the folk hero. I wanted to, I because I thought that was a very good sort of. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, thing to How get into get because that's 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 what made you want to go into journalism. Yeah, you know. Um, you wanted to be a hero, a like Look, Superman. You know, they, you know, I mean, it was activists who you know, who, who created the civil rights movement, but it was, you know, the journalists who were, you know, gave it 
oxygen, you know, and it was like how it was covered in the portrayal, you know, and I think as a young person, my idea was, you know, that people are basically good. And if you can expose injustice, that it will, you know, yeah, it's not going to end something because you don't have that kind of power, but you could help, you know, you could foment or give fuel to a movement to affect change, you know, that, you know, I'm playing a bit part in something. Now, you know, did I have this ideation that I'm going to put corrupt congressmen in jail? Yeah. Have I done that? No. You know, what I have done is, you know, interesting work after the near failure of the nation's tallest dam, uh, mm. which is the Oroville, the, the state water project, the California State Water Project's Oroville Dam and Complex, um, which nearly failed in 2017. And I was in the wrong place at the right time and covered that and covered the hell out of it. Uh, there were 188,000 people evacuated and the evacuation routes led people directly into and across the place that would have been inundated by a 30 foot wall of water. Um, wow. I was able to speak with engineers and expose and publicize uh, decades of mismanagement, you know, and not because uh, decades of mismanagement by the California Department of Water Resources that led to this facility being um, a danger to the community. Uh, and the, I mean, just to give you the, uh, an idea of the size of the reservoir, I calculated it would inundate an area the size of the state of Connecticut in three feet of water. Hmm. So I, th I think, wow. that was it, or maybe it was one foot of water. Uh, it, if memory serves, it holds four. It the capacity is four million or about four million acre feet of water, and an acre foot of water is one acre, one foot deep. So it must have been one foot. You know, I mean, it would if all of that water spilled out at once, I mean, the, the death toll would be catastrophic. Right, because we're talking about not just falling like rain or even that, like torrential rain can be devastating. You're talking about like a whole flood coming through. Yeah, it through. would be going down yeah. the river channel and it would, you know, come right out of the, out of the river channel and just flood all these areas around it and it would have flooded the entire Sacramento Valley uh, down to the city and county of Sacramento um, and um, in Davis, I think. Um, there's, and it, you know, and, and this actually goes back to California politics and Proposition 13. Because of Proposition 13, that reservoir, which was built with state money in 19, in the mid 60s, uh, they decided that the, it wasn't that the only people who had to pay or the people who needed to pay for it were people who were benefiting from it. So that would be the irrigators, people using irrigation water and the 
Los Angeles area, they use some of that for drinking water. But what happens is that these, because these other agencies from outside of the area, uh, because they were paying for it, they also essentially had veto power over spending on the thing. So mm-hmm. when issues were raised, like, is it really as strong as we think it is? What is the explanation for this potential issue? We need to maintain this this is starting to break down these guys down in Southern California, the um, people that control these irrigation districts were like, no, we don't think that would be a good use of our members money. So they wouldn't spend it. So they had this facility. And one of the things that the engineer, one of the things that he said is complex systems fail in complex ways. And then it's not one failure, it's a series of cascading issues where one small thing is wrong, which leads to this, which leads to this, which, and pretty soon you have this chain of events where you have a catastrophic failure. Um, but people couldn't anticipate it ahead of time, you know, and people assume, well, it's super far-fetched. Then a year later, so they hadn't maintained or they'd poorly built what they call the, um, what the hell is it? Downs, not the downspout, it's uh, the spillway. So it's basically this concrete, think about it as like a gigantic 30 lane wide freeway ramp that goes from the dam down to the river channel below. And when the dam gets to the highest level, you know, when the dam is nearly filled, they don't want it to go over the top of the dam. So it gets, it spills out of this thing and they have these gates that they open up and the water can spill down. So the, the thing basically developed a pothole and the pothole broke apart and then the whole, and then what they decided to, oh no, it's damaged. And if we send more water down this thing, it's gonna get damaged even more and it'll cost even more money to fix. So let's shut the thing down and let the reservoir fill up. Oh. That's a and brilliant they idea. <laughs> well, I had this other thing called the emergency spillway, which didn't have gates. And it was this concrete uh, weir structure where the water, once the water level reached the top of it, it would come spilling over that. And then it would just go down this hillside. The hillside wasn't lined. There was no concrete. So and environmentalists have been telling them that that was unsafe and that it could cause a catastrophic failure. Now, one of the things about California was that when the reservoir was nearly full and then they had this big gigantic pothole open up on the spillway ramp uh, is that we had an inbound series of uh, atmospheric river events. Now, California is kind of funky because from about April until November, there's zero rain. Yeah. You know? 
there's no rain, except maybe an errant shower in the mountains. But occasionally in the winter time, in addition to the regular storms that come in off of the Pacific, where it's kind of by New York standards, it would be like light rain or mist for hours, you know, several hours, but really what you would consider light rain, not like, oh, it's pouring, right? When we get these atmospheric river events, there's this thin, a narrow band of moisture that's stretching all the way back to the tropics and Hawaii. And it sort of operates like a fire hose where there's an intense band of, of, of rainfall, but it's only in a, in a narrow north-south area. And it's mm -hmm. like when you let go of a garden hose, it's kind of going all over the place. So it'll shift north and south during, you know, over a series of hours. Anyway, they had these heavy storms moving into the catchment area for this dam for the reservoir. So there was about 11 inches of rain that fell in the Feather River Basin. So the water co going into the river, the rip, the water coming down the river into the reservoir was at about 178,000 cubic feet per second but they could only let go about 100,000 cubic feet per second. Wait, 100,000 versus what, they, seven? They could release about 100,000, right? Yeah. Cubic feet per second down, that, down, down the uh, spillway. But the water coming into the reservoir from upstream was about close to double that. Right, okay. So the water level in the reservoir started rising and eventually it hit that emergency spillway level. It hit 900 feet and it went over that thing. And just immediately it started eroding away the hillside. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know how fast, but eventually they realized that it was, it was, it was eroding the hillside away at about 30 feet. It was head cutting, they call it head cutting. So the erosion from the water spilling over the thing was digging out the soil and what they were, and it was moving back, forming this gully that was moving back towards the reservoir at about 30 feet an hour. And when they were about an hour, when, when, it, when that gully was about, they realized that what's gonna happen is the gully will undermine that concrete wall at the very top of the, what they call the emergency spillway and when the water starts coming in underneath it, it's going to rip that whole thing. And, and that weir is going to go down the hillside and there'll be nothing holding back yeah. the top 30 feet of water. And you're going to have just this tremendous flood that's going to inundate this town right below the dam. And then every other city going down to San Francisco they told everybody you have one hour to get out. Now the sheriff's communication center is directly, but is like beneath the dam. The jail is beneath the dam. The county office complex is beneath the dam. So they sent out one emergency alert from the broadcast, you know, emergency broadcast, emergency broadcast system. Now it's called the emergency alert system. You know, and then there was nothing. And then the bot, you know, I got called back to the radio station because there's emergency. I raced in there 
and they're like, you can't broadcast unverified information. But then you try calling the sheriff's office and they've evacuated. Mm. So there's nobody you can talk to. Yeah. And they had to evacuate the jail. They had to evacuate the whole town. Uh, it was a complete fiasco. Um, and then also the, the next year we had the worst fire in this in California history. Wait, just go back to the damn situation. So what what ultimately happened? Did it did uh, water spill over and flood the whole town? The water spilled over. Uh, well, they you know the water was leaking out pretty severely. People ran for their lives, uh, but it ended up holding and they increased the flow from the damaged concrete spillway. And that, um, they increased it to like 200,000 cubic feet per second, which is a tremendous amount of water. Uh, and that whole concrete spillway, like the two thirds of it broke apart and it caused all sorts of problems and they just spent, I think, $2 billion over two years replacing and repairing it. Mm. And there's some great YouTube videos, mm. uh, both of the disa near disaster, near catastrophe, and then of the reconstruction. And they were forced to put in all of the uh, safeguards or most of the safeguards that the environmentalists were demanding during the uh, federal energy uh, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, mm. uh, re there was a relicensing hearings in 2005 uh, because there's two hydroelectric power plants that are attached to this dam complex that produce a tremendous amount of free or essentially free energy. And um, one of them they had this huge fire in i mean there are all sorts of problems with those you know yeah and this past year was like well they had a, they had a fight they'd done all sorts of retrofitting in the one of the power plants and then there was a fire and because they had used different types of wiring insulation and other stuff that wasn't compatible when it caught on fire it made this toxic gas and they it's been over 10 years and it's still unusable, like it destroyed the power plant. And then the other power plant, when the debris from the hillside got into the pool below the dam, the level started back, it, it essentially created a, an artificial dam in the river channel. So the water started backing up into the um, power plant so they were afraid that they were going to have to shut that power plant off which would reduce they have a they send water through it you know so they would lose the ability to release some of the water in the dam if they had to shut down the power plant there was another thing where these idiots the engineers took out a baffle there was something and they tried to run a test and they opened up the valve to uh you know, 100% or whatever without this baffle. And it created this vacuum that pulled the catwalks off of the access tunnel walls and hurtled, like pulled the fire extinguishers out of the mounting brackets and sent those things at 
70 miles an hour down these corridors. It shattered all the windows in glass in the offices, which were like a quarter mile away through tunnels. Um, and it, I think it nearly sucked three people to their deaths or something. Yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I, so I've broken a few stories uh, here and there and then got to chronicle the next year in November of uh, 2018. Uh, it was November 8th, 2018, and I was making coffee and I got a call from somebody, a friend of mine who actually works uh, in the, um, the cannabis industry at a trim house and said, dude, there's a big fire. It's going to get big. You better get down to the station and tell people. And um, this was about half an hour after it sparked and um, about maybe half an hour before it struck paradise. But that fire, um, it killed 85 people. And it also destroyed 15,000 dwelling units, which coming from a big city sounds like a, a good sized number, but not huge. Right, but, but I think out there, just exactly because this just, is a rural yeah. county and that was the second largest town second largest city in the county um it made twenty nine thousand people homeless in mm -hmm. a county with two hundred fifty thousand people it made 10 percent of the county or 15 percent of the county homeless yeah that's in, huge in, a, in an hour yeah you know? i mean it was a firestorm and it was unreal and I was up there, you know, when there are active roadblocks because I'm press and I'm in there while it's still burning. Um, the air, I mean, it, I, it was like the end of the world. It was like the apocalypse. I, there's no other way to explain, yeah. uh, it, you know, I mean, we just had, there were high winds. Um, our local utility has a tremendous amount of power they basically control the state government and they use their lobbying power to um, avoid being regulated that well. And so therefore they had facilities that were very poorly maintained. They had um, high tension lines and high you know, transmission towers that were, 100, were over 100 years old that had never been maintained. And um, they had um, so hooks are, on the power line. Are 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 those the things that are uh, triggering the fires? Is that that's what, what triggered this particular fire? Okay. There were extremely high winds, which are common in the early autumn, so September, October, um, as storms start heading into the Pacific Northwest, uh, and as they push through into Eastern Washington and Idaho and Montana, we sort of get a backwash mm -hmm. and we get hot, dry winds blowing westward out of the Nevada, Northern Nevada desert and Eastern Oregon desert. And when you get 70 mile an hour winds blowing across an area that hasn't seen rain in six months. Yeah. 
and the humidity is in the single digits, it's like one spark can cause absolute catastrophe. There was a fire the previous year that was caused that nearly that burnt into the city of Reading. It burnt an air, a tremendous area, and it even destroyed, it went all the way up a mountain and destroyed the transmitter for our radio station at 6,800 feet, okay? Uh, and burned into Reading some 40 miles away. That was started by somebody towing a boat with their pickup truck and the um, safety chain or something, or no, that they had a, the boat was on a trailer and they didn't, you know, the trailer was really old and the tires on the trailer were really old and they were driving out to the lake and one of the tires went flat, but they couldn't tell. So they're dragging the, the trailer oh. and just the rim and the rim of the trailer is sending out sparks and it caught some of the vegetation on the side of the road on fire and, you know, destroyed this massive area. And that's amazing. Dollars. Because, yeah, because out here in the East Coast, like we, we hear about the fires only after it's, it's you massive. know, yeah, it's become like untamable. Um, Uncontrollable. Yeah. And uh, so, I, I don't remember ever hearing stories about like how these fires got started, but these are like everyday things that happen. So it's not like, um, yeah. A lot of them are started by the utility. You know, they have, um, when, when there are high winds, you know, either a branch will hit the power line, you know, but not, I'm not talking about the low voltage stuff that goes to, individual houses i'm talking about the yeah. those big high tension lines and they don't have a big corridor cleared around them enough uh and then also they're not maintaining their towers so in this fire the campfire and the reason they named them for the closest road so there is a road right there called campfire road so that's why it's called the campfire fire. or maybe it was just called camp road and then there was another one, the, the one I'm talking about where the, the person with the boat trailer uh, outside of Reading in Shasta County, um, that one happened near the car, C-A-R-R, powerhouse for the, um, the car powerhouse. It's on the Whiskey Town Lake um, National Recreation Area, which is another part of the yeah. reservoir system. So there's a hydroelectric plant and the fire started next to the road leading to the hydroelectric plant. So it was called the car fire, C-A-R-R. -R. So, uh, this was called the campfire. So is, is all of California basically a tinderbox <laughs> or? It's hard to say. I mean, down South, there's not a whole lot of vegetation you know, it's like shrubs and bushes and grasses. So when the fires come, they spread really, really quickly and they will burn hot, um, but it's not like it's, um, 
big pine trees cheek by jowl up north here they've been doing i mean everywhere in the u.s they were doing fire suppression you know after the white man came they decided you know well they, they these indians are savages and they they're setting fires and destroying you know causing this danger plus they're destroying this valuable asset trees which we could cut down right. and build stuff with but you and need so to sometimes they you know when the forest service was really developed in the 19th century it was all about putting out fires putting out fires before they begin and saving plants and saving animals and saving trees and then we can you know sell them off well by not having fires all of the the forest grew really thick and choked with vegetation. The trees are super close together. The uh, all the trees are mature. There aren't trees of different ages. So yeah. when a fire would rip through a natural a natural forest, um, it would spread a certain distance. The younger trees would get killed, and then it would create more space. You know, and so. It couldn't, so the next fire couldn't spread as far. You know, it was sort of self, it would put itself out, right? And the native Indians would, would set fires in the early spring and in the late fall to clear, um, to clear forests so that they could have, you know, some meadows because they would grow, their medicinal, medicinal plants would grow in, uh, in the meadows, but not in a terminal mature forest. So they, they recognized that fire suppression, you know, that fire was a natural part of the environment and mm -hmm. part of how the forest stays alive, you know, but Western thought, man is so stupid that they don't, you know, they yeah, didn't. Yeah, but I thought, uh, well, at some point, I think the, the forest industry, I think realized that because I remember hearing this like some years back, like the way to manage these raging forest fires is to actually have smaller fires to get rid of the sh uh, the chaff, basically. But but at this yeah. point, because they were suppressing fire for so long, it's really, you know, they can't. They almost can't do that because uh, it immediately gets out of control. I we see. had this past summer fires burnt the entire Mendocino National Forest, over 1 million acres, okay? 1 million. So just, just to give uh, some perspective, what is that, like the size of which state? <sighs> hmm, I don't know, I'd have to look it up. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe we, I'll look it up right now. <laughs> okay. Or my, you, you talk and I'll look it up. Okay, uh, so it's, you know, it burnt a massive area. And, you know, one of the things that I actually want to research and do stories on uh, is how the Forest Service is going to manage uh, regrowth in that area and management. And, you know, this is the clean slate that they've all been talking about. In the 80s, they attempted to do some kind of controlled burn in Yellowstone Park and, it got out of control because the winds changed and it was so um, 
It was so big. Well, how big is Delaware? I mean, Hold on. Uh, I can quickly look up Delaware and Delaware see is almost two million uh, okay. square. So Rhode Island is a little under one million square miles. Okay, so it burnt an area bigger than Rhode Island. Yeah. Um. Well, what happened? To my I mean, uh, not miles, uh, square acre. Yeah. What one so, million acre? Yeah. You know, and that was just one fire. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there were. I mean, we had. I mean, after the during the campfire in Chico, I mean, every so many people left town, and I had to stick around because I was, you know, the reporter. But I was wearing N95 masks, you know, a year before COVID. You know, when COVID happened, I'm like, oh, I still have my mask from the forest fire. Uh, the air was so bad; it was like the PM 2.5, the particulate matter, um, which you know, in Beijing or something, it'll hit like 900 during a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, it was 1300. Mm. The sky was black. I mean, mm. it was like nighttime at noon. Yeah, yeah. It was the, you know, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, it's scary as hell. Um, so what actually puts it out? Is it something that uh, the forest industry does or does it just burn out because i mean this, especially this uh, well, past I mean, summer have, past few years has been like raging like mad it's scary well what you what what typically happens is that um it's all down to weather you know so it stops raining in the in the early spring kind of eight by the beginning of april it's pretty much over maybe you'll have an, an errant shower or two in in may and one in june um but what happens in late July in the desert Southwest starts getting moisture from Pacific remnants of Pacific cyclones that hit Mexico get pulled into a um, get pulled by the trade winds or something northward mm. and they reform in the desert Southwest in Arizona and New Mexico as the Southwestern monsoon, they call it. But some of that moisture, if conditions are right, get pulled up the spine of the Sierra Nevada range, which is, you know, high elevation, eight, nine, 10,000 feet tall peaks. And that creates electrical storms. So that moisture Gener you know, the moisture it from the remnants of those tropical cyclones in late July and up to about mid-August, you have a period where you can have these outbreaks of hundreds of dry lightning strikes across California in the mountains in the Sierra Nevada and the coast range, and then uh, presumably in the mountains in Southern California too. I've never lived in Southern California, so I'm not as familiar with it. And what happens is that they spark so many hundreds of fires all at once, all in one afternoon or overnight or something. There was one night where they had 1500 lightning strikes in a 24 hour period. They, they just don't have the manpower to get those. So when the fires first start breaking out in June, they're on top of it and they have crews that they're, you know, they, they drop people in by helicopter they drop people in by parachute they have you know hot shot crews they call them they have inmate fire crews they have hundreds of people 
in these wildland fire trucks that can go on dirt inmate, roads. Inmate as in uh, prisoners? Prisoners. Oh, really? If you are if you're in prison in the state of California and you meet certain minimum uh, you know, security requirements, or you know, like if your crime wasn't that, I don't know what what crimes disqualify from you. Yeah. But they can put you, you can get put on an inmate fire crew. I think they only pay you a dollar a day and you're risking your life. Um, <laughs> I, I know. So your your crime to begin with was minimal. So therefore you're not a huge security risk. So they're going to reward you, you by you putting your life not, in danger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, you're not in the prison, you're in the fire camp out in some rural area. And, you know, you're yeah. getting experience. Now they had this thing where they would, anybody who'd been in prison was forbidden from getting a job in the fire department in the state fire system called they call it it used to be called the california department of forestry uh, or cdf oh so their experience putting out the forest fires so is that a resume builder is that it yes but they were oh it was illegal for them to get hired as firefighters after they were released from prison uh, they only just recently changed that, like within the yeah. last six months or something. But um, that's really messed up because you talk about, I mean, one of the biggest, one of the biggest problems in this country is people get, you know, arrested or they get, you know, they do something bad, they get thrown in yeah. prison, but now they're like marked with the, you know, well, you're an inmate and you're in prison yeah. and you committed to this. And so you can't get a job and you can't get housing. And then when you're released, what can you do? Well, you can't get a job because no one will hire you because you were an inmate and you can't get, yeah. you know, so what, do you, well, you go back to committing crimes. The, uh, the whole, it's an industry at the, the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, there's, that's another whole can of worms. I mean, um, I, I know a little bit, I mean, enough to maybe have a conversation and, and ask questions. You know, private prisons but, and... Oh yeah, um, actually um, I was shocked. So one of my first corporate jobs was I was um, working for financial analysts. Uh, so these are guys who study companies and uh, they're all, they were on the sell side. So they would write up these um, reports recommending stocks, you know, buy, sell, hold. I, think, you know, you know, I used thing. to be a business reporter and I'd have to call those guys. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I get yeah, like so, you're not from Bloomberg, and it's like this guy's following that stock, and that guy's following that stock, and you'd call him, and you know. Oh yeah. Nine times out of ten, they just hang up on you or whatever. And it's well, you know, they're like in, coked out, busy. You know, they're ultra busy, coked out. Jacket. Um. Well, the firm I was working for was uh, maybe five years prior, just sort of established that uh, department. Um, uh, they they were trying to grow that business in house uh, organically, and and at some point, about a a few months after I started that position, I wasn't on a financial analyst. I was working for them, so I wasn't oh. part of the administrative staff. Um, so a few months after I started that job, we heard news that uh, the company was uh, buying a, a a boutique investment firm that has that. Uh, whole department built out already. So, so they got tired of trying to build it 
uh, in-house and they decided, okay, we're just going to acquire this smaller company and, and build um, it out that way. That's, how, that's what it is. Did what? they lay everybody off who was inside the company already? Um, yeah, where there was overlap. So, you know, um, so financial analysts, um, they, they cover industries, right? Like, yeah, uh, industry sectors and, and, um, and look at individual companies within that industry. Um, and it's what I find interesting is that within, within the financial analyst community, there are awards so so you could have like rock star you know financial analysts like rising up and and they cost uh, a huge amount of money for firms to hire them um, mm-hmm. their contracts are like ridiculous but anyway um, I mean they do help um oh shit uh, I you know I I yeah. gotta look for it because I I haven't opened it yet just, just bear with. Just, just indulge me here for about fifteen seconds. I'm looking to look for something. Should I keep talking uh, or what? What's that? Should I keep talking or pause? Yes, yes. Keep talking. Keep talking. Okay. Uh, what was I saying? So why did I bring this up? Uh, oh yes, yes. So we were talking about the prison industrial complex. So one of the industries that's covered is called REITs, which is real estate investment trust. So yeah. these are. Have you heard of them? Of course. Okay, so real estate investment trust. Now within really within REITs, there you have different kinds of REITs. You have commercial REITs. You have this REIT, you know, uh, covering different types of real estate. One of them, <laughs> one of the REITs sector or subsector, is called prison REITs. So, oh, God. oh yeah, and this is real. Uh, this is real estate investment trust. These are investment vehicles for people to invest in. And the, and the sector- It's private prison. It, these are prisons. It's ridiculous. I like okay. what I learned. We're yeah. gonna blast that up, blow that shit up on Twitter, man. I, I mean, I, uh, this, yeah, that whole thing is ridiculous. So what are you doing? You're looking for something? All right, I'll just tell you what it is because okay. you know, I haven't. So I won a uh, I won an Edward R. Murrow Award. Yay! Really? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. And it's somewhere around here in a box. I I've never opened it. It's like I was ready to do the unboxing. Oh no! You should. You totally should. You should. And okay. I was like. Oh, because I'm, I'm like joking because I've, I've had it over a year and it's sitting in a box somewhere. Okay, you know what? Let's take another pause. I'll, I'll pause the video and then you go look for it. <laughs> okay. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. Okay, we're rolling. Uh, I'm not sure, but, you know, here's my, uh, my NPR mug, you know. <laughs> Wait, what does it say? Beijing what? So, Beijing, Beirut, ah. Berlin, Cairo. Dakar. I mean, it's all of their uh, new bureaus. You know, Rome, Sao Paulo. These uh, are these are locations yeah. where they're located, or I think that's where they have foreign bureaus. Or yeah, yeah, okay. Correspondent. Yeah. You know, um, you know, for me, I was just uh, you know, I don't work directly for NPR. I work for an NPR. I worked for an NPR affiliate for ten years. Uh, I was a program host. I was the morning edition host for about five of those 10 years. Um, I did some 
you know, I was reading the underwriting and doing the local news and the weather forecast. Uh, and then, you know, thrown into these big stories just for being sort of at the wrong place at the right time. But, uh, the first the first time I yeah. was on the network uh, was in 2017. And I did a little 40 second story because uh, some crazed, methed out jackass uh, went on a shooting spree in his neighborhood and killed like eight people. Uh, and that was right, you know, and it was like 30 miles away from me or 40 miles away to the Northeast. And I remember driving over there, I got in the car as quick as I could and damn it if like the news van from KCRA, this is the Sacramento news station, man, this guy was hauling ass going like 90 miles an hour, you know? So I'm like working for this rinky dinky station and I, I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but as a reporter, I was like, oh, finally, I'm in with other reporters. Like, I'm at a real event, you know? Uh, you know, so it was just, you know, thank you, crazed uh, gunman for, you know, helping me with my career. You know, I mean, it, it's horrible because that's not the kind of thing that I do. I don't generally cover crime, but, you know, that's what they wanted for the hourly newscast you know yeah there, there is something seconds. i mean yeah. so going back to what you were saying like when you were a uh, little growing up and um you know you saw reporters as these heroes um telling truths and yeah i mean it's a fourth you know it's sort of like the fourth branch of government it's like a check and balance that's outside the government on well, on the government and on malfeasance and on business and on anything. I, I would agree that it's a check in government, but I wouldn't I wouldn't agree that it was the fourth branch of the government. I, I, I think yeah. it should be completely divorced from the government, which is well, unfortunate I mean, because right now it is essentially operating like an extension of the government. Right. In many I mean, cases. I think if they're, you know, I'm talking, I'm, I guess I'm going back to the, the you know, it, it journalism is called the fifth estate and that has something yeah. to do with the French Revolution. And as uh, much as the fifth column, no, the fifth estate, the fifth column, uh, we'll get to, but it's something else. Estate, like the first estate, I, you know, it's like the royalty, the Catholic Church, the nobility, the bourgeois, and then the press or something. <laughs> so, but um, in terms of a column, what they say, what they call it, like the fifth columnist, it had something to do with um, saboteurs. Well, right, right. Like were, some subversive like, kind of. And that was part of, I think that was from Mussolini's rise or something. I yeah. Mean, it, it goes way I don't know, back. But... You know, like Molotov cocktails, right? Uh, so it's... the reason why something's called a Molotov cocktail, which is like a homemade gasoline bomb. Yeah. When the Soviets were allied with the Nazi with Nazi Germany because they assumed that like in the first world war that their soldiers would end up being the cannon fodder while England and France and Germany also fought but that they would pay, you know be paying the real price so they said well you know what let's let Britain and France and Germany fight it out and then we'll sit it out and then when they're all weak and dead will come in and take over everything. So yeah. they signed this non-aggression pact with Germany. Well, 
they ended up invading Sweet uh, Finland because Finland had been part of Russia under the Tsars period, and they wanted to reconquer this land. And the Finns were able to, uh, you know, it was the the Soviets were unsuccessful, and the Finns were hugely outnumbered, and they were able to hold them off. Now. The Soviets started bombing Helsinki, you know, sending planes, dropping bombs on civilian targets over the capital. And when Finland complained to the League of Nations and to other, you know, to the world community, uh, the Soviet foreign minister, who was Molotov, said, oh, no, we're not dropping bombs. Uh, we are dropping bread baskets for the starving masses in Finland so they can survive under, you know, capitalism. So the Finnish people responded, well, if he's dropping bread, we're going to make him a Molotov cocktail. So we're calling yeah. our gasoline bombs Molotov Ah, cocktails. so that's where it comes from. Anyway, going back to the earlier point that I was trying to make. <laughs> was... So it's this hero thing. Um, wait, hold on. What was the point I was trying to make? Oh, the fifth column. It's not. No, 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 no. Before that, before that. Uh, wait. Hero. I mean, I'm a dilettante, right? I get bored. Oh, no, 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 no. Right, right. No. I always get something different. I always get something new. You know, whether it's a bank failure or you know, people at the zoning board pissed off about their the the ivy from their neighbor growing onto their property or a dam failure or the but as, an, as a reporter though company. as a reporter is not a good thing yeah i like it I mean, yeah it's but anyway so so earlier you made a comment like you know that oh it's it's you know finally you're getting to a story where there are other reporters I, what i was what i was going to say about that was um i think that uh you know, there, there's, um, so we think of reporters, we think of the press, that it really, the press really needs to do their job in order for uh, there to be democracy and freedom on, on the land. Um, because, you know, if they're not there to put, to keep powers in check, then that's just, you know, but yeah. at the same well, time, these are people. You are people, and you need to yeah. make a living. You cannot be totally, completely altruistic doing this. No. But at the same time, I think like we hold um, the press, at, you know, at a very high standard, and I think we should uh, because well, look, I think the people that you see on TV make a tremendous amount of money. Sure. They're not necessarily the people who are writing their own scripts. They're, they're not. You know, yeah. They're news readers. So, I mean, people who you think are a journalist, they may not even be a journalist. They may just be able to read the thing properly with the right emphasis to make it really, really interesting and make it sound really good. Uh, and then you have, I mean- The real reporters really who are up. doing, yeah, the real if reporters- you go back to, If you go all the way back to the 19th century and you think about people like William Randolph Hearst, you know, or Joseph Pulitzer, they went into, they were, rich people, captains of industry who had so much money that owning a newspaper was a status. Yeah, thing. yeah. It was like, and you they know, could do people this. will think, you know, I mean, the line in Citizen King, 
people will think what I tell them to think. And that's true. You know, so these owners, you know, some of it was just a hobby and it was also a loss leader, right? So the, the newspaper made them famous, which maybe helped their other industries, right? Yeah. That's not really true today. Maybe Jeff Bozos, you know, is following that line with the Washington Post. Bezos, but, did, you, did you say that on purpose? Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, I mean, mainly it's all corporate and it's traded on Wall Street and you have yeah. an industry that has to compete for investment dollars with, you know, oil companies that, you know, they murder a bunch of people, stick a pipe in the ground and money comes out, well, right? That- or you have, or, or, or you have, you know, they fund, you know, you drop a hundred thousand dollars on a congressman and they approve some weapon system and then, you know, for billions of dollars. And then you have those profits or, you know, a, a tech industry, which figures out some way to lay off 2 million people, eliminate 2 million jobs, you know, a newspaper, you, so you're forced to compete on wall street you know, because people don't care. They just want the stock price to go up, right? Because mm. you need to make money. Well, if there's only certain ways to, you know, people would rather invest in a, you know, pharmaceutical company that might cure cancer or come up with a new, you know, an orgasm pill, right? Because that's going to be more profitable, you know, or in an oil company, uh, you know, that's going to, um, you know, pay some congressman to block uh, solar subsidies or something. There's just more money in it. So the newspaper industry, the news business has been sort of eating itself. And you have leveraged buyout firms, corporate raiders coming in, buying some company, selling off the real estate. They sell off the office building. They close the printing plant and mm-hmm. they sell the printing press. They sell the physical plant with the building. And they sign a contract with somebody else, some other company that they own. So they're having this company pay that company and they're taking the profits and they're leasing it back. They go from owning the office building to renting office space back from some other company. And, you know, they're slowly but surely chipping away at the financial viability of the company. You know, they're, 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 you know, uh, uh, vultures, you know, they're stealing the equity from these companies. And when there's nothing left, they sell it off that declares bankruptcy and all the retirees lose their pensions. You know, now I've worked my entire career and I've never earned any kind of pension. I've never been at a job that offered a pension. I've been at a few places that offer that have offered 401ks you know, or, or the nonprofit equivalent of a 401k. Um, but it's, you know, it's a pernicious, vicious, cutthroat industry in a cutthroat nation that's, you know, everything is guided by short-term profits. You know, how can we maximize the profits in the next quarter? You know, and there's nothing long term about anything. 
I think um, maybe maybe I I'm looking at it. I mean, you're definitely in it. You're in you're an insider in in, in the industry, so you you see it differently. I guess in, maybe in my sort of I don't know how to characterize it, but in my view, I, maybe I'm being a little more generous. Well, I, I guess the point I was trying to make is you know that we would like. Uh, you know, journalism to be really a noble kind of calling. Right. right. But I mean, the only way that Wall Street's going to invest in it if it's, if it's returning profits at the same rate and at the same growth rate as all these other extractive industries, and it can't unless it's extracting itself, you know, doing short-term tricks like laying off 30% of the workforce, closing the printing press and having it, you know, printed by a third party, um, getting rid of the union, closing the office building and moving to the suburbs, right. selling the office building and renting office renting a tenth of the office space back because you've eliminated ninety percent of the jobs. I, I understand that's the reality. <laughs> I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is now is it like the fourth or fifth time? Come on, Sorry. let me finish. <laughs> is I'm just wondering, like, you know, I, I think it needs to be a noble cause, a noble calling to to some degree that people who are genuinely interested in in telling the truth and exposing corruption and, and you know, all those things. Um, but at the same time, these are real human beings working and they need to eat, they need housing, they need retirement and things like that. So you know, how do we make it so that uh, it can accomplish both, you know, so ha um, attract people who are not, um, who are genuine, you know, journalists, but at the same time, allowing them to make enough money so they could do the work that we need them to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, and being know, beholden, no, yeah, being beholden to a, Wall know, Street is not the answer, obviously. Yeah, I mean, there's some argument or, you know, attempts at building a nonprofit entities, you know, uh, a nonprofit model or a subscription model, you know, um, it well, has. But isn't, isn't that the business model of all, um, well, newspapers and magazines certainly is a subscription model, which is not working because of digital. Um, and everyone wants information free now, which I think is is not. Um, yeah. You get yeah. what you pay for. Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. And then, and then, so now what you're having is these mainstream media. It, so I feel like we all contributed to some extent to the demise and maybe the corruption of media. Well, I would love yeah. to just point the fingers at mainstream media right now because of all the misinformation the, and all the misdirection the that they're causing. But, but- There but, are all sorts of factors in, in play. I mean, you look at Craigslist, you know, something like Craigslist, nobody ever has to pay $10 to the, you know, Sheboygan News to post, you know, my, F, my Ford F-150s for sale. Right. Yeah. How does Craigslist make money? Doesn't it make money? Yeah, must. But uh, what um, it did was it eliminated classified advertising, and eliminated and then other internet stuff eliminated. Right. Right. Okay. So that's the point you know, you're so making. Like the you know, and then 
the, all of those retailers, you know, if you were Macy's, you know, you had that, you took out the ads. Well, those companies are all suffering. You go to the malls are all shut. They're full of vacant stores, you know, or people are advertising on Facebook, you know, which is totally ineffective, but Facebook is, you know, you know, they are doing all sorts of stuff with the algorithms. Yeah, yeah, and now freedom of speech is is uh, at peril because of um, the random cancellations and all kinds of things that they're doing. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And you know, and actually, when this video is done, it will be on YouTube. <laughs> so thanks, Google. But but at the same time, uh, some of the decisions that they're making, uh, these um, you know. Um, uh, Silicon Valley moguls, you know, yeah. they're, they're making these decisions unilaterally. And they might say that they're, you know, private companies and, and you know, and Congress is not making any laws to help them do this either. So what are they to do? Um, there's no, there's no long, no thought about long-term, you know, repercussions or unintended consequences, you know, for anything. Sorry, there's a siren going by. So oh. this is New York. <laughs> yeah, here I got um, the loudest thing I have is there, the landlady has a peacock. <laughs> oh, she has a peacock. Peacocks make this very they unexpected do. sound. Yeah. Yeah, it's not yeah. pretty at all. No. I, I was like, I was moving my stuff and, you know, and I, I told her, I was like, I was really afraid I was going to, because the peacock was like, I guess intimidated by me or keeping its distance from me, and that I was, it was like getting really close to the road, and I was afraid that it was going to walk up onto the road. And I told her later, and she's like, "Oh no, don't worry. She, the peacock is very. He's uh, he's he's kind of obnoxious, and he'll walk out across the road, saunter across the street, you know, and block traffic on his own." <laughs> but um, anyway, so so I think um, you know. Yeah. So you're you're actually in your profession, you're doing everyone a service. Yeah. You yeah. Know, so I, let's I, let's break out that award that you got. Okay. So yeah, I mean, like you know, for somebody who's paid barely over minimum wage and had to like fight, you know, tooth and nail to get them when I the uh, they wanted to pay me fourteen dollars an hour at the NPR station, and I'm like, dude, hire a high school kid, and I got up and walked out, and. Uh, it took me three weeks to negotiate to get a better salary. This is a, the job that I was um, laid off from by email after working there for 10 years. Um, but in any case, I have- Well, a it's better than what that, Comey got. There was, a, yeah, there was a little thing that I got sent that has to do with my, um, that was the last time I was in New York in October of 2019. And I got to put on a tuxedo and nice. go to an award ceremony and I got sent the trophy and I've never opened it. So here, after all this time, is the official unboxing video right here on Beer Cake. And I promised Tess Viglin from Marketplace, who I worked with closely and applied for the award and submitted everything. And um, we won it. And um, here we go. It's a lovely box. <laughs> yeah, another another box here. 
It's got a lot of a lot of tape. Ooh, 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 ooh. ooh it's a corrugated, uh, protective ooh. cardboard. Peanuts too. Styrofoam. Ooh, and then like a. Wow, this is really well wrapped. Da -da, da -da. We need to have like some music. Drum roll, ladies and gentlemen. Drum roll. Oh my gosh. Like How much wrapping is there? Video on the internet. Here it sure? is. Are you sure there's an actual award there? Here it is. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, indeed. That's really nice. And there's Edward R. Murrell. Yeah, in a plastic bag with masking tape. Ooh, behold, honoring excellence in electronic journalism. Oh, they have to put the, the electronic radio, television, digital news association. Oh, I see, because they also have a comparable award for like print journalism and broadcast yeah, journalism. Yeah, that's called the PU Litzer Prize. Or the, yeah, so this is, uh, this is the electronic, you know, North State Public Radio, Chico, California, Mark Albert, After Paradise, continuing coverage, small market radio. Awesome. That's so nice. You I have your right in value 50,000 Cronkites. Yes. You have your name etched into that piece of plastic. Yes. Yes. My uh, name in plastic. Yes. My dreams. If only my mom could see me now. You will. You, come true. That that's your that's your um what do you call it uh, uh yeah you you're living forever now. Yeah. Because that that will never disintegrate. That will never oh. um yeah biodegrade. So have to start uh, take up chain smoking like Edward R. Murrow and. <laughs> Wait, did you ever smoke? Wait, you didn't smoke. I mean, who didn't? Oh, but, oh, is that know, right? Clothes? Okay. No. Yeah, but um. Anyway, so yeah, I, I think I, I I think I think uh, journalism is a noble calling, and um, unfortunately, the industry is such that uh, you know I I don't think there's enough of um honest journalists although you know yeah, although i think what's happening now is because mainstream media is so whatever that there are all these sort of independent uh news channels there are good people out there there are good people working for bad editors there are bad people working for good editors there are good people working for bad publications you know it, it's hard to you know it's hard for me to make a, and it's always a lot more complex. There's mm. so many things going into the media environment and why the media environment is so horrible. It's really hard to, you know, yeah, Craig Newmark and Craigslist has a lot to do with draining stuff. Yeah, the Wall Street barons and just how um, newspapers or any industry has to compete, you know, pharmaceuticals the same way. Uh, you know, everything has to compete for investment dollars and you have to compete with the biggest growth industries and you have to be growing at the same rate. Um, you have digital transformation, you have people used to getting the news for free online, 
Um, you have stuff turning a lot more instantaneous, mm -hmm. people not being caring as much about context. Um, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, if you look at the local news, there's so much police stuff and, you know, horrific crime that really serves no cultural purpose other than to make people scared. And you would say, well, it must be because they're racist and they want to make certain groups or certain types of people look bad. And, you know, I think that what the reality is that you're, if you're a reporter or news organization or TV station with your half an hour news, so you have 22 minutes to fill after the commercials, you know, you have somebody with a scanner that makes good video, you know, no matter what yeah. you have some captivating video, you know, it's a siren, it's the lights, it's a car accident, it's somebody running from the cops. It's, you know, it gives you some dramatic video and you know what? You have a scanner so you can, you know where the action's happening before it happens. So you can get there and it's not staged. And this way you have something you know, and if you're looking at it from a, um, a news producer's viewpoint, it's like, well, we have 22 minutes to fill. What are we going to put in there? Well, we've got the store opening. We have the guy turning 101 who got the cake. You know, I, I'm just, you know, like the, the garbage. I don't watch local news, you know, local TV news, but, you know, and then they, they'll have the mayor, you know, as at a press conference, this event happened and then they have some crime stories you know maybe a fire so um, it's all really formulaic but it's all because they need to fill some space so is local news local news covering only what's happening in that locality so they can't cover things that are happening in the like, great greater state or in the national stage well i mean you have to sort of view your thing so if you're a small player you don't want to cover news that's happening somewhere where you're not, you know, where you're not broadcasting to, you know? So like, I'm about to, uh, about to start a job at this, at this radio station and they have a really small coverage area because they have a really weak signal. So I was like, Hey, you know, the Mendocino National Forest, you know, burnt up, that's a million acres. And I, well, they're like, well, we don't, our signal doesn't go there and nobody lives there. Yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, that's where they'll start and then it'll come here. You know? Right. So it's like trying to trying to convince them that, you know, so yeah, you're, you're sort of limited in that you're only gonna cover stuff that's in your coverage area. That, that seems a little... You know, and maybe you'll do a state issue, how the state thing, you know, a new state law impacts local people right exactly that's what, that's my point yeah uh because what's happening at the state level or even you know the county level uh and certainly the national level you know may impact but even if it doesn't directly impact the locality it's still worth knowing what's going on yeah yeah but you know people aren't interested in you know the yugoslavia and the civil war you know or you know, or the plight of people, you know, the US, the CIA, and the military industrial complex using Yemen, you know, the, the whole thing with uh, the US supporting Saudi Arabia, 
to blow up Yemen because, you know, instead of Vietnam or Soviet communism being the domino thing that's going to take over the world yeah. now, you know, Iran is going to take over the universe. And that unless we murder children in Yemen, that, you know, that's going to happen. I think um, something you said earlier about, you know, um, local news being a lot of uh, sort of scaremongering because what you're reporting is a crime and a lot of bad things that are happening. So I think, uh, but I wonder if uh, news has to be that by nature, just exposing all the bad stuff because it does have that negative impact or for a very depressive kind of impact. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I know some people have said, you know, in the past, I've heard people say that they don't watch the news because it's depressing. Um, and I think, you know, but, and th that's the kind of impact if it, you know, it has on sure, the I culture. Mean, you know, the yeah. perfect story. There's a question for... in there somewhere. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, I can't tell you how many, you know, it's like, Oh, missing blonde, you know, it's like, you know, young, you know, good looking, you know, blonde disappears and like the whole news media drops everything. And it's like, you know, if it was an older person who was disabled, like they don't, who disappears, like nobody gives a shit, but it's like, oh, this person was, you know, gonna get married two weeks and had this honeymoon planned and this whole extravagant and then they just vanished what happened you know i mean yeah it's horrible you know and it is a story and it is important but they blow these things out of proportion you know and i had a call from somebody and they're like you know would you freelance this thing because there was a missing blonde you know in our area and i'm like fuck you i'm not covering a missing blonde you know forget it Wait, as, as journalists, you have a choice? Well, it was somebody like, from outside of the area trying to get me to like do a free, to freelance. Oh, I see. You know, like, you know, we need somebody to cover this. I forgot her name. She was from Reading. And there was something really suspect about this thing. Yeah. There was something really strange about the case. Well. Okay, so well, here's the thing. So you get well, and, you know, and, and, and okay. that, that creates its own. It, it sort of creates its own universe, or creates its own cycle. Where you know, if you're not covering that, people are saying, "Well, why aren't they covering that?" Right? Well, yeah. they're missing that. You know, oh, Channel This had this, but they didn't. Or even if you take somebody who's like super serious, okay, like my former boss, Amy Goodman, on. Pacifica and she does democracy now. It's all super negative. It's all super, you know, all the, you know, the chronology of all the pernicious forces that are gobbling up freedom and, and, and righteousness throughout the globe. And I can't listen to it. It's just, it's super depressing. She doesn't do crime, you know, but then also she doesn't do a lot of challenging interviews, like the people mm -hmm. who are that she, choose, that she interviews are generally, you know, people from her Rolodex, people that she's friends with or knows, you know, uh, or it's somebody else in the alternative or leftist press that she, you know, she'll give a forum to. So it'll be somebody who has a story in the nation and, you know, it'll be like, so, you know, 
what was the big point that you know in your research that you found out? Well, tell me more about that. You know, what was it like when you you know, and it's not you know oh well that's it you know tell me more about that you know that's not really a question. Um, you know, and I yeah. love Amy and, you know, she's a wonderful person and, um, you know, I certainly learned a lot and I, I, I have great debt and greatly indebted to her, you know, I mean, geez, I got sent off to go cover something with the Dalai Lama, you know, um, Rudy Giuliani is a 19 year old. This is in New York. When you were in New York, okay. Yeah. So uh, it's been 30 some odd years doing this and you're still in it. You get paid shit. Yeah. You have no it's financial future, no nest egg. Uh, and yet you're still in it. The nest egg. <laughs> Sorry, what? The nest egg that I have is from uh, that. After my mom passed away, I um, inherited a tiny bit of money and used it as a down payment on the house that I bought uh, from uh, that I, that I bought in Chico with my ex. Um, she got to be a college professor, so she was paid more, a lot more. So when we split up, I couldn't afford to buy her out. So and no one would give me a mortgage that would be large enough to cover how much we owed plus you know plus the amount to buy her out so she bought me out so i have that okay yeah don't lose it um don't don't put it on GameStop. <laughs> no sorry sorry uh you know reddit folks wall street that bits. stuff that's fascinating. And oh, yeah. Really I have a whole podcast yeah. after this, this, this wow. Saturday about that. Yeah, yeah, that I'm recording um, with uh, someone who's, I think his experience has been mostly like maybe like 20 years or 30 years of experience in managing funds. Uh, so he, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's going to be fascinating. So I'm doing like a whole bunch of research about that. Wow. So I'm kind of, yeah, so I'm excited about that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating case. What's, yeah, what's I mean, hedge funds are the worst, you know, and they're horrible, pernicious things. And they, you know, they, they're, have destroyed this country in a lot of respects and hats off to anybody who takes down these hedge funds. Well, it's just only one hedge fund that's been crippled. Uh, I don't think other hedge funds are. But it's a start, you know? It's like, what do you call a busload of lawyers going off of a bridge? What? A start. Oh. <laughs> or a busload, of, a busload of lawyers falling off a cliff. What? what? A start. Why? Why, why do lawyers get such a bad rep? <laughs> no, I mean, there are noble, I mean, constitutional lawyers. Hey, they're great. Uh, ACLU, you know. Yeah, for every good lawyer, there's like 30 <laughs> shitty lawyers. 
Yeah. Although the ACLU today is not the same as um, who's the guy who founded it? I forget his name, but um, William Kunstler. No, uh, is it no? Melvin Belli. I don't know. It, it was like I think was it two guys who started it or something? But anyway, yeah. yeah the thing, um, the thing about the uh, the reason why he came up it was like on a podcast i was listening to and his name came the up corporate law or like you know congress with their fifty thousand page bills that nobody that they pass that nobody reads that yeah turns out have all of these loopholes <laughs> and sweetheart deals for yeah happen to leave a suitcase of cash for some congressman so you know they they donate a hundred thousand to some congressman and they get you know a five million dollar no bid contract and $10 million in tax breaks, you know, that's a great return on investment. You know, that's something that's not available to ordinary people. Ordinary people should have, our, we need to have our own political action committee so that we can bribe, I mean, make campaign contributions and then threaten Congress with, we're going to cut off your campaign contributions because that's all that, you know, yeah. the whole system's really really messed up and you know and i get the populist outrage oh yeah i totally do i totally get it you know there's so much that doesn't work and there's so much red tape you know but i don't necessarily say well oh red tape is because of you know socialist tendencies or stuff i mean all of these rules are there for a reason somebody did something and swindled people and there was enough public outrage that they pass some regulation. But so, so politically, what are you? Are you a liberal, uh, libertarian, anarchist, communist, <laughs> socialist? Are you well, allowed I mean, to have a political? Uh... Yeah, I don't think that as a reporter, you're supposed to have uh, political opinions. You know, <laughs> I think that, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that necessarily a political organization or you know how how a nation is organized politically really has much of an effect i mean there's certain class of people who are very ambitious and there's certain groups of people who really want power and status and no matter how you design the system there's That's always everywhere. Be pernicious, yeah. yeah people who who um climb to the top whether it's you know these wall street uh you know, uh, 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 you know, these yeah. Wall Street Eichmanns or, you know, a dictator in Belarus or, you know, I, the Burmese coup. I mean, yeah. no matter how, you know, whether you say, well, this is going to be a worker's paradise, you know, there are people who get the best apartments and people who get the caviar and the other people who get, you know, potatoes. So, yeah, I well, although that, I do like potatoes, so yeah, yeah, I like potatoes too. I like rice though. Hey, did you see that thing in Malaysia where the president there was this big campaign or, or or there was a political campaign and the guy who was trying to have the comeback or or the other guy who was he said something he he was promoting quinoa and he said quinoa was really great and you know malaysia is an asian country with rice and it was like such outrage <laughs> that he lost the election 
it was like the post, like the other people really like went after him and made it a big scandal that he was, you know, basically by saying good things about quinoa that he was talking smack about rice. Um, was it because he was being bribed by the quinoa industry? <laughs> no, I mean, quinoa is, is, is you know, that it was developed or, you know, by the Mayans. Yeah, or, South by, American. By the, the Aztecs and, and I mean, uh, the, you know, in Peru, Inca. Inca, yeah. Um, yeah, it's South American. Yeah, in and origin. So, and it's like incredibly nutritious. I don't really like it that much. I actually do like it. I, we don't We don't make it enough. Uh, you know what you could do? You could you could mix a little quinoa with the rice, and it comes well, out. I like I like I like sushi rice. It's crazy. I mean, I, I I love white rice. You know. Wait, you like wait white rice? Sushi rice is flavored. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also get Thai rice. I'll get Thai rice that I'll make. You know what rice I really like? Um. Jamaican rice, the huh. dirty rice, um, coconut rice. No, mm. they they put a little bit of I think. Well, I I think maybe there are different recipes. Like there, no, there's some version of I don't know if it's Jamaican or, uh, but it's it's in the West Indies uh, cuisine. Huh. There's rice that's made with uh, coconut oil, so it has that nice coconut oil. Uh, I'm in sorry. Malaysia, they, coconut call, milk. they, they yeah. cook rice with coconut milk and the, yeah. the nasi lemak, and it's absolutely delicious. Oh, nasi lemak. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I probably had that when okay. I was out there. But uh, yeah, I don't remember. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, you, well, you're still in it. Are you going to are you going to die a reporter? Is that your plan? I hope not. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know. You're in your 50s, so if you're not gonna, well, so am I. Hey, yeah, 52, 52 and a half, baby. Yes, yes. Wait, uh, 52 and a half. Wait, wh what month is your birthday? Oh, wait, no, now I'm like 52 and three quarters. Yeah, I think your birthday is like a. Oh, man, it's in two months. Fuck. Yeah, in April, uh, right? Yeah. Yes, I'm in May. Yeah, because yeah, our birthday was is close together. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I yeah. Make it this far. You look fantastic, by the way. I wish oh, I looked this good. It's uh, you. the years have been very kind to you. Uh, I don't know. I think it's genetic, or I have no idea. And I'm not. I'm not even wearing makeup. I don't wear makeup. And that could be part of it. Maybe neither do I. <laughs> but I, you know, a little something I, on the lips. That's it. <laughs> you know, if I shave, I look younger. You know, if I cut my hair, you know. Yeah, I think so. Also, in person, I probably would look young, uh, older. I think it's the the video transmission that's it's oh. masking a little bit. It's the lighting. You know, it's a little. It's not high def. It's a little diffuse lighting and everything. Okay. So, yeah. But um, anyway, let's uh, start closing this out. So it's been, wow, three and a half hours already. <laughs> um, so uh, you you told me earlier, not, not during this podcast, something about Kermit. 
Oh yeah, Kermit the Frog. So yeah, that was yeah. another sort of influence on me was, you know, seeing they had this little bit on Sesame Street where Kermit the Frog would go into character and he would be dressed as a reporter and he'd have, you know, the trench coat and the the hat, um, the, um, uh, I'm blanking on it, right? And the fedora with the, I guess he'd have his press pass in the, you know, in the fedora band and then you'd have a microphone and he would be interviewing, you know, other Muppets that were, you know, from fairy tales. You, know, <laughs> you did like the Rapunzel interview with the, you know, they, they'd have like the fairy tale, you know, Rapunzel let down your hair or whatever. And say he was interviewing her or the, the three pigs or something. There's a whole bunch of them. So I have a surprise for you. So I went to YouTube and I collected a bunch of them. We could watch one of them now. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So wait, I'm going to share my screen. Hold on. Uh, share my screen, share a sound. Okay, here we go. So, um, so uh, everyone who's listening, if you go to my uh, podcast channel, Beer Cake with JJ Co. Sorry, I almost forgot my last name. Beer Cake with JJ Co. That's my YouTube channel. If you go there there's, uh, and click on playlist, there's a playlist of, of all the Kermit News, Sesame Street Newsflash. That's what the segment was called. And. Uh... Oh, no, man. Okay, let's skip the ad. We take you now to Kermit the Frog at the scene of another fast-breaking news story. Hi-ho, this is Kermit the Frog speaking to you from the scene of the accident, uh, where Mr. Humpty Dumpty has just fallen off of his wall. And to recapitulate that story, you may remember that Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all of the king's horses, and all of the king's men, and, uh, uh, wait a minute, that's one of the king's cows back there. Pardon me, Cal, I believe it's uh, just supposed to be all the king's horses here. Come on, get out, get out, get out! All the king's horses and all the king's men are indeed trying to put Mr. Humpty Dumpty back together again. And we're going to get a word in with one of the king's horses here right now. Pardon me, horse. Uh, Kermit the Frog here, Sesame Street News. Can you tell us uh, just what's happening with Mr. Dumpty over there? Well, uh, Dumpty's a tough egg. Yeah, tough Not what egg, you'd yeah. call hard-boiled or uh, anything. Hard-boiled, But right. he had a pretty bad fall. Bad fall, yeah, you say. Yeah, you can see part of him over there. Yes, that's part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's another part of him. Uh, gotcha, another yeah. part. And right there, that's the final part right there. That's the last of him. Yes, I see. Yep, well, I gotta get back to work, Frog. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, well, folks, as you can see, uh, it's been a bad break for Mr. Humpty Dumpty, uh, but uh, the delicate job of putting him back together again has started. Matter of fact, if you look back there now, you can see that they've got the bottom and middle parts together. Yeah, and uh, right there, see that? There comes the top part right now. This is a very exciting and dramatic moment, friends. And matter of fact, there it is. They've got Mr. Humpty Dumpty back together again. Yay! Oh, look at that, friends. Look at that, friends. Humpty Dumpty is back together again. Yes, I am. Listen, uh, uh, Kermit the Frog here of Sesame Street News here. Hi, Frog. Yes, well, I, I just wanted to ask oh, you. Oh, Sesame Street. How do I look? You look fine, yes. Thank you. And I just wanted to ask you, how does it feel to uh, have it all together again, huh? Well, golly, I just feel like a brand new person. Well, you, you certainly look like one. And uh, speaking uh, for all the egg lovers of the country, I want you to know it's very nice to have you back. <laughs> uh, uh, horses. Uh, horses, Kingsman. Uh. Okay. Uh, 
Oh, it's still playing on my end. I have to, <laughs> I don't know how to stop this. Okay. Oh, stop, 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 stop. Okay, here we go. So that's great. So yeah, I think I think Kermit the Frog is a wonderful uh, role model. I, I think I think more people should grow up watching Kermit the Frog yes. and all his characters. <laughs> okay, you're distracted now. I think this is a oh, good no, time. My, my landlady's trying to get me to sign the lease. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and she's gonna come over with another burner for the stove because she was cleaning them. Mm. Uh, and they're, uh, it's like an old uh, O'Keefe and Merritt you can see right behind me from the 1930s or something. So, uh, you know, so it's, I'm sorry, she just texted me and I, you know, I was going to check in with her this morning and then got sidetracked. No, no, that's okay. I, I know it's like a lonely old stove right there standing all by itself and your refrigerator on the other side. Yeah, there, it's a very disjointed kitchen area. I have a lot, well, I have a lot of, uh, still a lot of things to put away. I mean, I just started opening boxes yesterday and, but I did complete the uh, reassemble the futon frame challenge. This is a, I found a futon and a futon frame in the street in Emeryville, like 17, 18 years ago. And what? I still have it. You still have that? Yeah. What? That's the same, wow, that's a long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't use the futon, but I use the frame. I just, and I had to um, oh, I see. rebuild it. Um, I have used that futon before. I used to sleep on it, but now I have a mattress that a friend of mine gave me. Um, so I put the mattress on the futon frame, but the futon frame is like, I had to reassemble it and it's like a super heavy one that was really well made, probably, you know, it's pretty old, I guess. Uh, and it was, it took a lot, it took several hours of uh, trial and error. <laughs> but, you know, I, I managed to put it back together without swearing. <laughs> and that is- Which For a New Yorker, that's a big deal. You know? that, that's a big accomplishment. Yes. And on that note, so you have a bed to sleep on tonight. That's great. Um, so I, I think we're, we'll conclude the podcast here. Um, well, it was great talking to you. JJ, it's fantastic to catch up with you. And, yeah. Um, so long from Sebastopol. And, and goodbye from New York. Well, let's do this again. Um, I'm hoping to do a reunion version, uh, a reunion episode with everybody on. Yeah. Next time I would be, I'll be more organized and I'll try to keep my thoughts going. Cause like, you know, for somebody to watch this or listen to it, who doesn't, you know, I, well, well, no, I think the fault is on me. I need to be better at like directing the conversation. I'm, uh, I'm a little rusty. I used to be a lot better at that. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway. I'm learning. This is only my second episode, so I'm learning as I go. Well, if you want to redo yeah. it, you know, if you want to like... No, no, we're not redoing this. I'm, I'm, no, I'm but not. I mean, redo it in like a half an hour thing because, you know, also I would start with, I would end with the how to catch it and watch it and not at the beginning because if you don't grab people in the first 10, 15 seconds with something, you're not going to grab them. Yeah, you know, it's okay. Is. That's not the audience I'm, I'm, okay. I'm targeting, so okay. yeah. Anyway, this is, the purpose of this is long form conversation. It is what it is. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, here I am on the, you yeah. know, on the cusp of technology with my, you know, 
Demuro Award and my, uh, you know, my still working Nokia. Flip phone. Oh. You still have a flip phone. <laughs> yeah, because my, my dog uh, sent my Blackberry into the Sacramento River and the screen cracked and it should get be a new old one should be arriving from China today. Oh, you know what? My my phone uh, last year, uh, like a few days before the end of the year, this is like December 28th or something like that. My phone died. Oh. Yeah, so that that's sort of like the last sort of FU of 2020. <laughs> God, you have no idea how, what a disaster or, or how much stress and, you know, because using this, like I can't access anybody's phone number, like yeah, yeah. contacts that I've changed since I was started using an Android, they're not in here for whatever reason. So like, I mean, it's just trying to move while you can't communicate. It's just been a whole. Oh yeah. Especially for you where, you know, you, you really depend on that. Me, I was just home. So, uh, and there are other ways to communicate. There's email, there's. Right. Um, yeah, you know, did somebody Facebook message me or did they, yeah, exactly. Me, you could... Or did they text me or did they send it to me on a Twitter <laughs> message? And it's like, God damn it. Why don't you just call me up anyway? Oh, I don't have your phone number. I'll get that from you offline. But anyway, on this note, uh, it was great catching up and, uh, thank you everybody for listening and watching. Remember, be sure to like, follow, subscribe do everything. It's uh, Beer Cake with JJ Co on Spotify and Anchor.fm. And you could follow me on social media, uh, Beer Cake Podcast. Thank you, everyone. And yes, put your masks on. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Peace.